quiet. Did you hear that? Oh! Yeah, it sounds like another episode of Watch If You Dare. Another week, another werewolf with your monster boys, Aaron and Derek. This week, we have a special episode. Uh, We have our first guest ever on, my lovely wife, Heather. This is kind of a special intro because we had a goof this episode. Um, The recording system decided to kind of die in the middle, so we had some audio issues that we had to account for. And so things aren't going to sound as great this week, but that's fine because we have an excellent episode regardless. Um, We are going to be discussing 1981's An American Werewolf in London, directed by John Landis. So strap in, have a fun time, and we will spoop you later. This is our second take because my computer decided to shit itself, so we're going to try and rehash everything we already went through. Yep, we had that early podcast uh, goof, so at least we got it out now, and maybe we don't have the same problem happen later, but, you know, it was bound to happen eventually. So, before we get to the movie, I would like to introduce our special guest this week. My wonderful wife, Heather, is joining us for this episode. Hi! Happy to be here. First guest. It's an honor to have you as our first guest. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Um, In the podcasting world where there's podcasts everywhere, I'm surprised this this is also your first time on a podcast, right? Yes, my very first time on a podcast. I feel like I have truly joined this decade now. I'm a part of the 20-teens podcast revolution. (laughs) Yeah, I see, I was kind of half expecting you to have been like a guest on like a law podcast or something like that. (laughs) Nah, this is, I think, the first foray that either of us have gotten into as far as actually recording. We've both been listening to podcasts for years. Yes. So. Oh, I got a shout out on My Brother, My Brother, and Me one time. Does that count? Yeah, I guess we've, <laughs> we, all of us have gotten shout outs on various <laughs> podcasts before, but yeah, none of us have ever actually been on a podcast yet. Yeah, and so we decided to make our own. There you go. Yep, there you go. Hell yeah. So real quick, day one, what have you checked out this past week? So like I was telling you all before my computer decided to completely crash like it's 1998 again, I haven't really been getting into too much like spooky stuff. About four or five days ago, I sat down and I was just like, you know what? I'm going to finally watch Start to Finish Room 237. Mansfield, you and I attempted to watch it a while back, I think when I came in for your wedding. We got about 15, 20 minutes into it before we both said, fuck this and moved on. So I had Shutter pulled up. I was ready to search room 237. And right before I started like looking for it, I was like, you know what? I really don't want to spend the next two hours of my life on this <laughs> dumb, dumb, dumb documentary. That's a big disappointment. And so instead I binge watched Daredevil season three. I got through like the first six episodes, I think in the first day. And then the next day I finished the last seven and also caught up on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia's newest season. And both those things are probably way better than that documentary because it, make, it makes me angry that they, they botched it yeah. because The Shining is like my favorite horror movie of all time. And I wanted a behind the scenes documentary and not a Alex Jones style, no. which I'm cool with. I would have been cool if they would have just focused on like the moon landing stuff or anything like that. But no, they go full blown like in this shot, this guy's dick is the stapler. So therefore, Stanley <laughs> Kubrick was all about male sexuality. I was really frustrated with that documentary 
documentary once we first put it on and I realized like what was happening maybe like 15-20 minutes in because like you said I was expecting it to be some kind of really comprehensive behind the scenes documentary or even like something about like the legacy of The Shining not two and a half hours of crazy people talk and going into how it's you know Kubrick's veiled confession to faking the moon landing footage or long drawn out you know stuff about like Indian massacres and everything else like it was just full of Looney Tunes nonsense and looking back on it I kind of enjoy it a little bit more for what it is but at the same time I generally subscribe to death of the author a little bit but that is just that documentary is full of crazy people and nonsense. I, I love Coast to Coast and I love Anytime Last Podcast covers batshit conspiracy theories like I don't believe it at all but I love the the conspiracy theory of him being involved with the moon landing but they went like deep deep dive into conspiracy I thought it almost seemed like they were making conspiracy theories up on the spot just for this fucking documentary there is one segment of that documentary I find pretty interesting with my you know former English major brain is the segment of the documentary where they are analyzing the layout of the hotel they're talking about how none of the the rooms actually flow to where they're supposed to flow and there are windows where there aren't supposed to be windows and so kind of looking at that uh, the hotel as a sort of house of leaves horror house that is uh, in some ways a living entity that's you know changing I really enjoy that theory I think it's fun to think about I feel like that's the one gem in that crazy yeah, we, we didn't get far enough and that honestly does sound interesting i think i would enjoy that part of the documentary because i'm with you i think like even if it's total bullshit it's still interesting that i didn't know that um that they went that far because we never got past the the, the dick stapler scene <laughs> conspiracy yeah that's generally my issue with the documentary is you know some of it's founded like i do think that there's a lot of like native american massacre stuff in that movie whether it's textual or not sort but, of like all the porn in american werewolf it comes up a lot yeah there's a there's there's a lot of porn <laughs> stuff in that movie um, yeah we'll get to that later i did, was not expecting that but uh... But the shit that, like, drives me up the wall is, like, this whole conspiracy theory about, like, oh, well, the movie has this extra layer of, like, spookiness because the fucking layout of the hotel doesn't make any sense if you, like, lay out where all the rooms are and blah, blah, blah. Well, no, the fucking reality is it's a movie and they shot it in, like, four different locations. You know, they shot it in, like, the, a real hotel and then they shot it on sound stages and it's all fake. So yeah, none of it makes any fucking sense when you lay it out, but like, it's not that deep, people. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. not. It's interesting. It's, it's interesting enough to like. Death of the author, Aaron. I think it's more interesting <laughs> to like witness the depths of insanity that these people have subjected themselves to rather than like what they're saying. Like the fact that somebody did take the time to like lay out the entire hotel meticulously painstakingly is more interesting to me than like what they're actually trying to spin. And if it would have been a mix of conspiracy theory and ones that are more legitimate, well, I don't want to say legitimate, like the ones that at least have like a lot to say and just aren't completely batshit. It would have been a mix of that and behind the scenes. Yeah, I'm totally on board. And I remember years ago when this movie was first being advertised before it was released, You, I think you were the one who first brought this to my attention. We both got pretty hyped for it. Then it was like you and one or two of my other friends who did see it when it came out, because I think it came out when I was in nursing school maybe, and I just didn't have a chance to catch it. All of y'all were like, 
we know how much you love The Shining, don't fucking watch this movie. And, I mean, granted, I still haven't watched it, I've only seen about 15-20 minutes, and that enough was enough to piss me off. So I feel like I need to be drinking when I do finally sit down and watch it start to finish. Because I will, I, I'm, it's that morbid curiosity of me, it's almost like the Metal Gear Survive, like I know it's a bad idea, and I know I shouldn't check it out, but I really want to, I'm really curious. We might need to, like, have a Skype date, like, sit and stream it and watch it and just get a little bit drunk one night. So, yeah, besides that, did you check out anything else this week? Like I said, Daredevil, and, I mean, there are spooky elements, I guess, sometimes in Daredevil. I mean, it's not at all scary. It's fucking awesome drama, action, but Daredevil's dark and gritty and has Catholic imagery everywhere, and it deals in, in the psychotic sometimes. So, yeah, it gets a little, there are a couple scenes that were a little spooky, but, um, no, I actually wanted to, I, I'm still just kind of reading through comics. That's the main source of anything spooky for me still. Since you've t- you'll probably be touching a lot on movies, I'll bring up a, a comic that... Heather actually wanted to bring your attention. I kind of brought it up last minute at the end of either the last episode recorded or an earlier episode. And it's an image comic called Man Eaters. I think there's only one issue that's out right now. The second issue I think is coming out in the next couple weeks even. It's written by a author by the name of Chelsea Kane. It's very much along the same lines of Bitch Planet. It's kind of like a horror comedy slash feminist critique on, on certain things. But just I wanted to give you all a little synopsis of it. It basically is a mutation in the toxoplasmosis which is a bacteria found in cat feces that causes menstruating women to turn into ferocious killer wildcats that are easily provoked and extremely dangerous okay yeah yeah this kind of takes place in like a near future alternate reality of our own and medical science kind of found a way to suppress women's uh, menstruation to make sure that like no one can turn into these wildcats because like when it first happens women are accidentally killing like innocent people in their own families it's kind of like a uh, a critique on the pink tax that you kind of find in medicine when it comes to healthcare for women as well as a little bit of critique and this is all just in the first issue you kind of see these undertones uh, Mansfield I think you had brought this up when I brought it up the last episode about fear of women in general in society of just like oh we can't openly talk about periods because they're icky even though periods are like a totally normal biological function and also too just in the description just give you a better idea they describe it as part cat people and part handmaid's tale that sounds up my alley i like yeah there are horror elements to it it's almost more it's an exploitation comic in a lot of ways like like bitch planet like it's just it's along those same lines so i I highly recommend it cool let's check it out Yeah, we read a lot of image stuff, so I'll definitely add that to the pile. So real quick, to kind of get into what Heather and I have been doing, we've had a pretty jam-packed week. We took a small trip for our anniversary, not our honeymoon, which I said earlier on the uh, first recording. (laughs) The lost recording. So maybe maybe it's good that 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 my computer (laughs) shit the bed. Eh, Whatever, I still brought attention to it this time, it's fine. We've been married two years, you know, no big deal. (laughs) It would have been funny if you said like, oh, we've been married... Four years this time around. (laughs) We've been married for two years now, and we are still doing fine. But yeah, we. For now. For now. That's what he's been telling me. No regrets. For now. For now. (laughs) Um, We took a trip to Louisiana, and we stayed. Romantic. Louisiana. Yeah. (laughs) 
we stayed at an inn in Hammond that was definitely, you know, not a plantation previously. That's probably super haunted now. <laughs> Luckily, there was nothing, like, explicitly spoopy besides a cute black cat that Heather saw. Any sightings of the Rougarou? No. No. No But Rougarous. we did see the cute little cat. His name was Henry. A black cat. Yes. Halloween. Yes. Counts. There exactly. we go. Exactly. Um, but the reason why we went down was to go to the 13th Gate haunted house in baton rouge which was excellent we had a blast definitely worth the trip we paid a little bit extra for some vip tickets to skip the outside line which was definitely also worth it because that line was around the block but yeah it was fantastic i was like a kid in a candy shop just running around and seeing all the different sections it was great you know, we went to Halloween Horror Nights a few years ago with her family, and that's also super fucking fun. That said, there's like millions of dollars that are poured into that from a budget standpoint. So yeah, like it's going to be, you know, super impressive. But I will say 13th Gate was really, really impressive for what they put together. And, you know, the different sections in this walkthrough are, you know, some are better than others, certainly. But overall, I was very impressed with it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was it was really, really fun. Aaron has done Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Orlando once. I have gone, I think, four times at this point. I really love these, like, Halloween mazes. Yeah, and the thing that surprised me in the last recording now is, because I did ask you earlier, um, the uh, Wizarding World of Harry Potter, they, they actually really don't do much with that during the Halloween Horror Nights, as well as, like, the Dr. Seuss area, because probably because of rights, right? Yeah, you know, it's in the park, but a lot of the mazes and the scare zones are sort of in, you know, back lots or kind of behind the scenes areas that they utilize for this. So unfortunately, no Dementor maze yet. Maybe one day. <laughs> I think that would be super cool as a Harry Potter fan. Again, that would be that'd be yeah. a great idea. I, I would love it. Yeah. But uh, 13th Gate was different from, you know, Universal houses and that it was a much longer experience. Some of those mazes at Universal can be, you know, around four or five minutes. They don't last very very long but this one it was at least 20 we didn't time how yeah, long we were in there but it was a long experience um i definitely enjoy you know looking around at the scenery and the effects and all the props and you know all of that, that they have set up and so we kind of walked slow through it you know except for when we were very scared <laughs> for the most part we could take it kind of slowly and look around and they really didn't rush you uh, it was a really good experience from a visitor standpoint that i felt like we were able to take our time and really enjoy it i mean it was just a great experience all around definitely recommend going pay extra yeah. for the vip tickets it yeah. is worth it definitely yeah. worth it that's cool um yeah and you had mentioned that you hadn't done like house of shockery in the new orleans area ones despite living there which is fair enough because i, I honestly the last time i went to house of shock in any new orleans haunted house was probably when i was like 14 or 15 mm -hmm. so it's been well over a decade myself since i've been to one yeah i i went to house of shock in high school it's been a while for me as well and i kind of wish we had been able to go again you know before they closed down but it is what it is but yeah definitely worth checking out so if anybody's in the area or if you're inclined to make a short road trip do it it's definitely worth checking out next season and if you're part of universal um again expand it to where it's in all the parts of the park <laughs> even though it'll ruin things for the kids because i'd want to see a horrific twisted nightmare version of dr seuss land yes cannibal cat in the hat please thank you yes Oh man, just the Lorax like starting human genocide. Like, gotta save the trees, man. <laughs> Fucking skinning teenagers in a shack. Yeah. Yeah. I saw you litter. Now you're gonna die. 
So, um, off topic, that kind of uh, brought me back to something that it was on. I think it might have even been one of the Comedy Central roast specials. But uh, Brian Posehn was there, and I forget who was making fun of him, but it was like a different comedian's turn. And he was like, oh, Brian Posehn, uh, it's good to see you. I'm glad that uh, you left your shack and left behind skinning uh, teenagers in the woods for a second to come here and help <laughs> us in the roast. <laughs> So yeah, now I just picture the Lorax like as Brian Posehn <laughs> dressed up as Lorax murdering teenagers. Yes, so I would watch that movie. We did that, and it was fun. We were going to try to go see the new Halloween movie and just didn't get around to it, so hopefully we can do that in the next week. Beyond that... We were a tractor around and fed a lot of deer. Yes, uh, we went to the Global <laughs> Wildlife Center as well, and it was delightful. We got to like see all the animals. How not scary, but no. how delightful! how delightful indeed. Yes. I don't know, some of those children screaming on the tractor ride, that's a little bit scary in a different way. Yeah, hearing <laughs> hearing like maybe 23 of the like 60-something kids that were on this long like drug by a tractor wagon train thing, hearing like 23 of those kids just all screaming at any given time was kind of nightmarish by the end of it. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but beyond that, I have been still reading some of the comics I've mentioned before. Cold Spots, Bone Parish, East of West just put out a new issue. I have also been trying to watch some horror in my free time. We have been watching the Haunting of Hill House show, which I'll let Heather talk about in a minute. And that show has been just A+. I've really, really enjoyed it so far. There are very, very few complaints I have about that show, and they're all nitpicky. But we've enjoyed it and have not gotten very far. I actually bought the book pretty recently and it's on in my stack of things i want to read and i've heard a lot of people say it is like the quintessential ghost story yeah and this tv show adaptation is nothing like the book like it's taking the basic premise and it's really doing a meta take on the original book but it's been very good so far it's mike flanagan who did oculus and gerald's game he's actually doing the dr sleep sequel to the shining um he directed the whole thing and it's got a cast of a lot of his regular people and it's been really good so far i watched today a movie called soul survivor um that is s-o-l-e one of the podcasts i listened to i can't remember if it was you know one of the old killer pov episodes or maybe shockwaves but i believe elric kane mentioned that you know he saw that movie recently somebody i can't remember who specifically put it out and it was kind of one of these oddball movies that just went way under the radar haha radar the movie's about a woman who survives a plane crash so it's very final destination in that death is now stalking her trying to actually get her since you know she didn't die in the plane crash tonally like they mentioned on that podcast it's very close to it follows it has that same sense of creeping dread and people like following this main woman who are kind of ghastly looking it just generally has the same look and vibe as it follows so that was definitely a pretty cool experience and a neat little gem that i've never seen before I wonder if both It Follows and Final Destination, if the creators um, both kind of have it as a direct influence. I wouldn't be surprised. It's yeah. it's a little known movie, but the guy who directed it, Tom Eberhardt, did Night of the Comet. So it's not like... Night of the Comet is so good! It's uh, not to give anything too much away to our listeners, but it is on our list. Yay! Yeah, we'll probably have Heather back on for that one as well. I love it. 
but he directed it, so it's not like it's this, like, no-name kind of movie. So, yeah, I don't know why, you know, it's not been talked about more, but I can pretty much guarantee that the people who made It Follows and Final Destination, like, would have seen this movie. You know, I would be very surprised if they hadn't. Yeah, and I, I will make note, I, I'm not going to do it now in fear of causing my computer to freeze again, but the first time we're telling me about this, um, I did Google Soul Survivor, but I, I Googled SO. UL and the first thing that came the up same was the, thing. Uh, yeah it was a young Jeezy song featuring Akon <laughs> called Soul Survivor then I, I did Soul Survivor <laughs> I did Soul Survivor a movie and Soul Survivors from 2001 came up which I can't fucking believe I that movie ever got made I, I totally forgot about it and then yeah finally I realized oh wait it's S-O-L-E I'm a dumbass so watch that you know, you know I'm a huge Texas Chainsaw fan, just, you know, we talked about it in the first episode. I love the first movie, I love the second movie, the second movie is a totally different thing. I will even go to bat for the third movie. That said, I've never seen The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, and that movie is kind of hot garbage. Um, that's the one with McConaughey and Zellweger in it, and it is not fun. It's very vile and mean-spirited and just kind of not well made all in the wrong ways like the first movie is all of those things the second movie is basically all of those things but those are at least enjoyable movies and have more going on beneath the surface this movie is just Matthew McConaughey being awful and screaming for an hour and a half and Renee Zellweger being really weird and like faux nerdy this one also has just banana stuff in it like mcconaughey has a robot leg that's controlled by all these different tv remote controls there's also like a lady in the family this time around so you say that and i'm more interested in watching it now (laughs) um one thing i didn't mention on the first recording by the way there is a weird subplot in it of the, like, Illuminati. I what? shit you not. What? So you're, <laughs> you're selling this movie to me. Like, I know you're saying it's hot garbage, but the premise sounds amazing. <laughs> Leatherface goes full transvestite in this one and is I'm, dressed I'm as a lady pretty much the entire time. He kind of went back and forth, you know, in the old movies, just whatever faces or skins he kind of liked. But this one, he's pretty firmly in the lady camp. But overall, like, not a not a great movie. It just repeats a lot of the same beats as movies one and movie three, which movie three is already kind of a soft reboot. So this is kind of like a fourth soft reboot. And it's just full of banana stuff. Like, the family's no longer cannibals. They're actually, like, straight-up vegetarians. Like, they order vegetarian pizza. Fucking what? <laughs> yeah, it, it makes no fucking sense. The best thing about it's the soundtrack, because it's just nothing but, like, early 90s cowpunk shit from Texas. Yeah, I remember we were we were texting about that, and I remember looking at the soundtrack and being like, yeah, it seems pretty legit. This movie also oddly reminds me of growing up and going to Blockbuster a lot. I only have seen the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then the reboot, which the reboot is also not that great. When I was a kid and when I was a teenager, before I finally sat down and watched the original, I kept going to Blockbuster to rent the original. For whatever reason, there was only one VHS copy of it, not even a DVD copy when DVDs came out and became a big thing in most of what Blockbuster had. They only ever had one VHS copy. It was always rented out or gone, or maybe the person who rented it kept it. But for whatever fucking reason, they had like four copies of this Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the the new generation or whatever it's called. I always remember the box art of like the leather face and full drag up against a red wall. And I saw that every time I went to Blockbuster almost. Yeah, I remember the poster that was 
like the red lips with the chainsaw lipstick. And a much better poster. Yeah, that, that one's a, a much better one. It's a pretty red poster for a pretty terrible movie. Yeah. But I saw that. Um, I also watched um, a movie called Hardware, which was by the director Richard Stanley, who is kind of a nutbag. It's like a post-apocalyptic movie where this like scavenger guy, played by Dylan McDermott, finds this robot skeleton in the desert and brings it back for his girlfriend who's an artist and then turns out oh no it's a killer robot it's a very interesting early visual take on like cyberpunk so that's kind of notable so from from the images i pulled up which this movie looks fucking amazing from what i've seen of it but of the killer robot it almost looks like immortan joe a little bit it's very mad max like it looks yeah. very mad it max, looks very mad max yeah. but it it definitely has more of a cyberpunk edge to it iggy pop is like the radio dj that you hear throughout it Lemmy Kilmeister from Motorhead is like the cab driver. And of course, there's a fucking moment where he's like, Oh, you like listening to music? Check these guys out. And then puts on fucking Ace of Spades. <laughs> so it's, it's neat. There's a lot of really good practical effects and gore and stuff in it. It's a very interesting small movie. And Richard Stanley, who directed it, is a very interesting nutbag in and of himself. Because he directed The Island of Dr. Moreau. And he famously got fired off of that movie because he's kind of a nutbag. When I say nutbag, I mean like in the documentary about the making of that movie, he's like, I went to go see a warlock and we did a blood sacrifice to make sure that the success of the movie went through. (laughs) And, you know, of course he gets fired and he's literally spying on the production from the bushes after he's fired. That's so good. Just dumb shit like Not that. Not a very good warlock, apparently. Yeah. Or the best warlock, and he cursed him. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's what happened. I think it just backfired because Richard Stanley has not done much since. So that was definitely also an interesting one. So that said, I mentioned Haunting of Hill House a minute ago. Heather, do you have anything more to say about that? And then I guess tell us what you've been up to. Uh, Haunting of Hill House is great. Look for all the ghosts when you watch it. There are ghosts yeah. like all over that show. They're everywhere. Yeah, I, I've seen articles all over the place about all the Easter egg ghosts that are yeah. in every shot and every episode. Yeah, they're everywhere. We're only about three episodes in last night. And I guess the best thing I can say about it right now is we we were watching episode three and girl, girl got to practice self-care and girl got to make sure she gets enough hours of sleep at night. So girl has a bedtime, but we were watching an episode, end of episode three. And I was like, okay, how many episodes are there? And Aaron was like, I think there are 10. And we checked and there were like 10. And I was just like, damn it. If there were three, like we could finish this right now, but I can't binge like seven more episodes. <laughs> so I was really mad that we had to quit. That happened to me with Daredevil because Daredevil has 13 episodes in season three and I was just like fuck I just want (laughs) to keep going but it's like three in the morning (laughs) exactly yeah uh Hill House is great and we'll probably go watch another episode when we get done Uh, the other thing Aaron and I watched together recently that he did not mention was Practical Magic the lovely (laughs) 90s witch movie with Nicole Kidman and Sandra Bullock at like peak 90s hotness that's the best thing about the movie pretty much even though i enjoy the movie aaron did not that's still probably the best thing i mean nicole kidman come on the costumes in that movie are great uh the choker that sandra bullock wears throughout that movie is just like giving me so much 90s life it's beautiful but yeah i really really enjoyed that movie i know a lot of people 
think it's, you know, too cheesy or all over the place, which it kind of is. You know, it swings from abuse to, yay, we're witches jumping off the roof. It definitely is a little bit all over the place, but I like that it is a, a good example of a heroine's journey story, which is a story, you know, of course you have the hero's journey, which is a typical arc that, you know, you've seen in Star Wars and Harry Potter and everything, Lion King, you know. But heroine's journey is a, a sort of a different arc that is about usually a female character uh, recognizing that she kind of had the strength all along or reconciling two different parts of herself to become her true self. So it starts off, you know, with the separation. And you see that with Sandra Bullock's character where she is wanting to reject her witchy self and become quote unquote normal. But as the movie progresses along, you know, the resolution ultimately is she gets to keep both her love, her normal life with her family and her magical powers she kind of reconciles the two and you know brings them back together into her whole self it's just really fun I thought love the sisterhood moments at the end where all the women in the town kind of come together break the curse true love wins it's good yeah. stuff <laughs> um, so the reason why I went fuck yes when you started talking about this was because uh, at the time of this recording about a week or two previous the F This Movie podcast which probably all of us are, are big fans of yes. they did a Practical Magic episode with um, Adam Risky and Alejandra yeah yeah and Adam Risky and Patrick are, are like two of my favorites of part of the F This Movie crew and they kind of really criticized the movie um, while Alejandro was like no I, I love this movie and I'm poking fun at them but like it was all done very well and I respect all their opinions a whole bunch but it was entertaining to listen to uh, even Patrick and Adam Risky were like we feel so shitty for shitting all over your favorite movie <laughs> But um, Patrick himself even has gone on, like, like I've heard him on multiple episodes say, like, at the end of the day, he can think whatever, like, you can think whatever you want about a movie, but you can never argue against someone who says, I just like this movie for what it is. I like fun. And you can't argue against fun. And we all like dumb shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'm not even saying Practical Magic is quote-unquote dumb shit, but, you know, just we all have our quote-unquote guilty pleasures. Like, I love the Brendan Fraser Mummy movies, at least the first two, and I know the second one for sure is hot garbage. I love System of a Down's Toxicity album. And I know the Toxicity album is kind of hot garbage, but what the fuck ever. I like, I lo- I like them both. Yeah. That is what we like talked about afterward because, yeah, Practical Magic's not good. It's not well made. The editing's all over the place. Tonally, it's all over the place. There are so many weird subplots that it takes for no reason. We were talking after where you could literally cut the entire romance part out and it would probably be a better movie because it would just focus on the relationship of the sisters. That said, once we were talking about it, like Heather mentioned, the heroine's journey is just something that like I don't pay enough attention to. Same. And obviously nobody does. You know, that's why we don't have more movies that have that structure but you know listening to her talk about it afterward like gave me a better appreciation for it at least to like know that there's more going on than what my like film eyes are kind of seeing and tearing apart yeah. so like you know we talked about like i'm glad she enjoyed it that's all i kept saying after was like i'm glad you enjoyed it <laughs> that's not a, it's not a movie that i watched in the 90s so i don't have nostalgia eyes for that movie like i do for maybe like hocus pocus but i did really enjoy 
enjoy, you know, it was it was fun to go back and watch. Yeah, again, you can't argue against fun, just like Patrick has said. Yeah. So before we dig into An American Werewolf in London, and this is kind of where we got cut off the last time. <laughs> so something that, uh, that Aaron and I have both kind of talked about a couple times in, in previous episodes, and it's something that I think we'll do anytime we have guests on, we would like to get uh, an example of an irrational fear of yours, whether it be like, like we have both like said, I've said hornets, fear of the deep sea, Mansfield, you've said that fear of spiders, it can be as Trust me, I know that Aaron is scared of spiders. Who kills yeah. the spiders in this house? Yeah, <laughs> it can be fear of heights. It can be fear of an actual thing or just something more abstract, whatever you want to, what, what's a fear? Sure. Well, I'm definitely scared of heights, but. When you first asked me this question, definitely my weirdest irrational fear that I don't think it's irrational. I think it's a rational fear that came into my head was I am very scared of hand dryers in public restrooms. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So I, I think I was probably around 12 at this point. I used one of these hand dryers after washing my hands in a McDonald's and it blew dirt or sand onto me like something was in the dryer and it blew stuff on me I have not used a hand dryer since then so that's been 15 years at this point (laughs) I mean all right so I will I will I'll play that on that devil's advocate I I will give you more credence to this fear and that I I recently read within the last couple weeks an article about how they're filthy um, hand dryers are super filthy and spread more yeah. bacteria than anything else. Like I saw that. It's almost the point of, of negating your hand washing altogether. I felt so vindicated. I was like, I've been right this whole time. <laughs> like, yeah, I get it. We're trying to save the environment, yeah. but like you're doing a shitty job of doing it with hand dryers. It's literally a moist, warm breeding mm-mm, ground mm-mm, for no, bacteria. No, no. And then it just mm-mm. blows it all over your hands. No, I don't like it. Yep. I will, I'll wash my hands and then, you know, Usually I will just shake them off, dry them on my pants, but we're not touching the hand dryer. Just the thought of it, like, make, no, no. I will usually also, like, just kind of shake my hands off and, like, maybe dab them on my pants as well because I don't want to touch the lever for the, like, paper towel dispenser unless it's an automatic one. Mm -mm. Just because, like, so many people's, like, gross germ hands (laughs) touch that too, you know? I've always, if I do it, I either, like, if if there's only uh, an electronic hand dryer like that i i usually wipe it off on my own yeah. pants no, but don't use don't use a dryer day one don't do it if the paper isn't already out for me to grab down and like you have to manually do it and it's not one of those automatic ones i'll either elbow it or again dry myself off on my pants and <laughs> leave the restaurant all right so let's go ahead and get started talking about the movie um so again we are talking about an american world in london directed by john landis This is the story of two young American students traveling through England on a night of the full moon. Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? It could be a lot of things. Fate let one live. A lunatic must have been a very fierce fellow. Wasn't a lunatic. What? A wolf. Oh, be serious, would you? And now everything is changing. 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 John Landis, the brilliant young director of Animal House and the Blues Brothers, has turned a classic tale of terror into something new. 
something different. Excuse me. A naked American man stole my balloon. I'm a werewolf. <laughs> werewolf in London. Something different. Yay, this is one of our favorites. Um, this was a movie that I foisted upon Heather just like I do most movies because she did not grow up in a movie family like I did, but this one is one that she has told me multiple times. Like, I loved it. It was one of my favorite horror movies, especially one of my favorite movies we've watched together. So definitely appropriate that she's on this episode yeah. while we talk about it. I came into mine and Aaron's relationship. I was already a fan of horror. I would not say I'm as extreme as Aaron is. He has seen way more horror than I have. But I always liked horror and I liked Halloween and I liked haunted houses and things like that before we got together. So being with Aaron, I'm sure I have watched more movies since we have been together than I had had in my entire life previous. I just did not watch a lot of movies. I was more reading books or playing video games. But this is definitely, he has turned me on to a lot of really good horror movies. And this is my favorite, I think, that we have watched together. And it genuinely has become one of my favorite movies. Sort of in spite of myself, right? Because before... Before I knew much about John Landis, I think a lot of people already know about his son, Max Landis, who is just like hot garbage on the internet. (laughs) And so I was like, oh God, you know, this child had to come from somewhere. I had no idea Max Landis was his son. Wow. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, been accused of abuse and says all kinds of ridiculous things. He's and so, also just not the hot shit that he thinks he no. is. I'll throw that out there. And so watching this movie, I was like, am I going to like this? Am I going to like this? But I was so surprised at how intensely I enjoyed it. And I think, too, like going back and watching it again for this podcast, this is like the primo perfect bisexual movie because you watch this movie and you like swoon over David Naughton, right? And then you like want Nurse Price to take care of you and then they like get together and you just like watching it you're like, yes, this is so good. This is so good. All the chemistry. It's amazing. Swoon, swoon, swoon. And it's the best. It is totally equal opportunity, you know, if you're watching this as a bi person. Yeah, and there's there's (laughs) like nudity on both parts. Oh yeah. And there's always something enjoyable about watching like pretty people in movies especially when they actually have chemistry. And they're not like over the the top pretty either like they're believable pretty if that makes any sense yes. they're like regular everyday people pretty yes. which in a lot of ways yeah. is like even more interesting and like more sexy erotic and ways. sexy to watch mm-hmm. in a lot of ways yeah it just it feels more real it doesn't feel you know, yeah. movie. You understand why they fall for each other because it's not totally. like one person chasing the other. It's from the jump. It's like two people who pretty much on site, they're like, I like you. Oh, I like you too. Let's bang. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, you know, it's pretty much from the jump that they are into each other. And that is really fun to watch. We'll, we'll return to that because there is a part where I, I did text Mansfield that this is the weirdest romance when I was like in the middle of watching it. Because there was one scene that just kind of, I mean, I knew it was coming, but it was kind of abrupt when it did to me, like a really quick, uh, how it happened. We'll, we'll return to that because I want to get, especially your opinion on it, Heather, but not to like 
shit all over a parade, but this was something I was going to bring up later on in the podcast since we brought up Max Landis. Apparently, as recent as December 2017, he's confirmed that he's completed the first draft of a script to remake this movie. And I don't I don't care. Like, that I, I could care. Yes. sucks. I can't believe that. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, one, there's no need. Like, you can't recreate. First of all, you can't recreate Rick Baker, right? And so the special effects that are in this movie that are still so interesting and cool to watch decades later, you can't recreate that. So this movie is already funny. Yeah. I watched it for the first time a few years ago. It doesn't feel, it's not something that feels so far away that I can't relate to it as a modern person. There's no reason to reboot it. It's still totally watchable. It just seems completely unnecessary and kind of egotistical to be like, yes, let me do. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna do this thing my dad yeah. made and like mine's going to be better. No. And it's a product of the 80s in all of the best ways. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's, it's one of those movies that should just be left as an 80s movie that remains timeless to horror fans and just movie fans in general because there's a lot to like about this movie kind of before we get into like the going through the entire movie scene by scene and spoiling stuff again if you haven't seen this movie stop right here go watch it come back if you are like me and you're a big scaredy cat when it comes to at least horror and movies this movie is almost along the same wavelength it leans more into the horror than the original ghostbusters movie does but it is kind of more on the same wavelength of ghostbusters uh maybe a little more weird and it has more jump scares for sure they are very sudden but they're not like deal breakers like they are in other horror movies to me some of them are just so goofy that you're more taken aback and processing what you're seeing rather than being like jump scared and like literally jumping out of your couch i would say the the jump scares tend to be more audio yeah yeah the audio like is very things sudden. that you're seeing yeah. so i have the blu-ray which is the most recent blu-ray and it's a like 4k remaster of the movie and it looks gorgeous but the audio in its bananas and so we had it turned up at like a normal volume that would typically watch things but when there are like the loud wolf shrieks like all of our dogs just like flip the fuck out (laughs) so they would all like immediately like perk up and just be like what the hell was that to forewarn people who because i do know that there are a couple people i've even like i'm friends with and everything who have a fear of like big dogs and, and wolves and things like that then yeah this movie will probably creep you the fuck out because <laughs> yeah because the jump scares are very much all of a sudden a big giant wolf is like roaring if you can handle that which i love werewolves as far as cryptids go they're probably my favorite type of cryptid i wish there were even more werewolf movies that worked at least like this one does so this one didn't scare i mean it scared me at the jump scare scenes but like was not really jump scare heavy it was not extremely scary and it was honestly just genuinely hilarious movie it's a perfect movie to put on in the Halloween season, but really at any time you're in the mood to watch a horror movie. So yeah, all you scaredy cats out there, this one's probably mild enough to go check it out and then come back and listen to the rest. Yeah, I would still start with like something maybe a little less intense than this, but if you were going to use this movie as your starting point, it's it's not a bad choice. You could do far worse in terms of scary than this one. (laughs) So before we get talking about the plot, just for some background context, this was written in 69 by Landis and then just kind of sat for almost 10 years. The producers were all kind of, you know, iffy about it initially because of how it mixed horror and comedy. So they were just a little bit iffy about the mix of tones and whether or not that was going to work because there wasn't really a whole lot of anything that had done that up to that point. This is also the first movie to win an Academy Award for Best Makeup. Matter of fact, that 
whole entire category was created specifically for Rick Baker's work on this movie. That's fucking awesome. I didn't know that. Yep. So it's it's one of those relatively newer categories that's been added to the Academy Awards. Um, so it was great that he won it, you know, first go around. Beyond that, we can go ahead and get started. Um, we've got two American students who are backpacking across Europe. In the opening credit, by the way, I love that it had Lycanthropy Film United. Or unli- <laughs> yeah. I mean, not, not United, Unlimited. Lycanthropy Film Unlimited. And I looked it up and it was like, yeah, that was just like a make, made up like thing for this movie. And there are a couple of those like little Easter eggs that are like just made for this movie. And, and I thought that was pretty funny. So, yeah, we've got two American students, uh, David and Jack. So this is uh, David Naughton playing David. And then uh, Griffin Dunn is playing Jack Goodman. Call back to earlier, Griffin Dunn directs Practical Magic. So really, really, that's oh. a, <laughs> that's that's great. And he's honestly uh, in this movie, he's my favorite character as Jack. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's good. great. So they are backpacking. We catch up with them backpacking across the moors in the uh, Yorkshire area of England, and um, they're kind of talking back and forth about you know where they should go. Why didn't they go to Rome? They're talking about a girl that Jack's interested in, and right off. Off the bat, they have great friend chemistry already. Apparently a lot of that scene was kind of improvised between them, but their chemistry is already really fantastic and you get a good sense of them like just genuinely being buds it was such a bro like american we're backpacking in europe for the summer dynamic i'm just like yeah we want to meet hot european women and i have this girl that i'm seeing in america back home but it feels it feels genuine. but it feels genuine it doesn't yes. feel like an american pie movie yeah you know yeah, no, it, it feels it. like like i've had these conversations with my bros yeah. before. yeah and you know and no like American Pie movie or like kind of our era early 2000s bro teenager comedy they wouldn't be making jokes about Wuthering Heights like (laughs) happened in the beginning of this movie the comedy between the two just feels very natural this is a great movie regarding chemistry you know between the two romantic leads and the friends everything feels very natural which keeps this movie i think from feeling like it's over the top or too fantastic all the performances are so grounded that this feels more like a real story yeah and i didn't have a chance to really look this up beforehand so i don't know how much these people knew each other beforehand i'm assuming not a lot David Naughton was kind of picked out because he was in, like, the Dr. Pepper commercial. So I don't know if they knew each other or if maybe Landis took some time for them to all, like, hang out and get to know each other through rehearsals. But the chemistry between all the characters in this movie is really solid. So, anyway, they are basically dropped off in the middle of nowhere by a truck driver who's giving them a lift, and they are making their way toward a village nearby. And they arrive right as it starts to get you know, nightfall, and they get to the pub, and the pub is called the Slaughtered Lamb, and they kind of joke immediately about how the sign for the Slaughtered Lamb is not at all appealing, because it's literally just this giant wolf head impaled on a spike. So that's, you know, your first immediate, like, oh shit, where are we? Like, what are we stepping into kind of sign? And this movie makes no, like... There's no subtlety to this movie, no. but it, that's a good thing for the way it, it goes. As far as, like, subtlety is concerned, the movie literally fucking starts with them in a, like, sheep truck carrying a bunch of sheep. <laughs> yeah. and I, but, like, but the yeah. first note that I wrote down was just like, oh yeah, wolf among sheep, haha, <laughs> lol. So, <laughs> yep. <laughs> they arrive at the slaughtered lamb. They walk in, and you can immediately, like, hear the needle screech. 
and everybody just kind of stares at him because they obviously don't fit in. And John Landis fucking loves doing this, if you really think of his other movies, because the same thing happens in Blues Brothers, and the same fucking thing happens in Animal House. So he loves these scenes of, like, square-ass white people going to a bar that's, like, not at all where they need to be. This whole pub scene is great, but I did write down that this is, like, my social anxiety nightmare. To the max of just like yeah. walk being in a foreign country, walking into a place that I don't know anything about. Like everyone seems to know each other except for me, and they all like stop and turn their heads and look at me, and they all act really fucking weird to, to me, and they all like make fun of things like when I'm trying to be nice and fit in. They all like start mocking me. Like I felt painfully socially anxious <laughs> while watching these scenes. It cracks me up because like the weird bar scene is totally relatable to me like growing up in the south and especially going to places like in new orleans because occasionally you'll go to just the most redneck bar out of nowhere and you're not necessarily expecting it or maybe just like the most cajun ass swamp bar so like that whole situation is kind of hilarious but the pentagram on the wall is pretty red so that's you know the first thing that they kind of notice and start joking about because they go to the bar itself and start asking like for you know food or a drink and they're basically just like yeah there's no food here okay cool i'll take a beer well there's no beer here like they're just kind of stonewalling them and they look over and there's yeah there's a fucking pentagram on the wall and candles on it and they're just like hey what's that and again it's just kind of like needle screech because like one of the guys is in the middle of like telling a joke about like an american or america yeah he was telling an alamo joke and then jack just like shouts hey, what's the star for? Yuck, yuck. And like, it was such like a, what the fuck are you doing? After they ask about the pentagram, all the people in the pub just immediately like kind of become standoffish. You know, there's a guy playing darts and this guy's been in all kinds of stuff. He's a character actor. I can't remember his name. Um, I have to look it up, but he's been in all kinds of stuff. He, you know, mentions like there's evil outside and blah, blah, blah. And another guy's like, all right, stop talking. Don't tell him anything more. You know, just you got to leave. Y'all have to get out of here. There's nothing here for you. <laughs> and the guy, the guy playing darts, he's like throwing perfect bullseyes. And then when he asks, what's the, <laughs> what's the star for? Like he completely misses the board and it goes into like the wall. It's a tropey thing, but it was a nice comedic touch. Yeah, like any kind of scenes like this, it generally always reminds me of like Pee-wee's Big Adventure where he goes to the biker bar and knocks over all the bikes. Yeah, (laughs) yes. But anyway, yeah, they they decide like, all right, well, fuck it. If y'all don't want to see her, we'll leave. So they leave. The people in the pub do just basically say like, all right, look, get the fuck out of here, but stay on the roads. Don't go in the moors. So they leave, and the bartender lady at the pub is basically just like, we need to stop them. Like, go back, go get them, bring them back, don't give them a hard time. And everybody's just like, nope, they can leave, fuck off. Well, part of that too is, you know, there's a discussion of whether or not they should kill the two of them, right? You know, because they're finding out the secrets of this town, should we just let them go? And that's one of the things, Derek, you were saying earlier, this movie is so quick to get into the shit of what it's about. So many horror movies these days are just build up, build up, build up, build up. And, you know, you build up for 90% of the movie and then you maybe have 10 minutes of the movie paying off. But from the go, this is a movie about werewolves. Here's some creepy shit. It's starting right now. Get ready. Yeah. Oh, I agree 100%. The horror is at the forefront at every act of this movie. And it's only, this movie is like an hour and a half long. So it's It's a very tight movie that doesn't waste time. You are in the story, you are in the werewolf 
plot. You are in the horror of the movie the entire time. And so I really appreciate that about the movie is that you're not spending so long waiting for it to get going. It's going from the very beginning. I will say, too, if I was in this situation, because when they're in the pub, they hear thunder. The thunder hits, like, as they're as the people are being super cryptic to kind of, I guess, add a little bit more of an over-the-top horror vibe to it. If it was me, despite the fact that this is, like, all my social anxieties wrapped up into one scene, I still would have just toughed it out and stayed in that damn pub if I was hearing, like, thunder that close by and it seemed like it was going to be a massive rainstorm. But that's just me. <laughs> So as they're leaving, um, it does start to rain, like you mentioned, and they decide to kind of just say fuck it and cut across the moors anyway, just to get out of the rain as quick as they can. And, you know, eventually it stops raining and it just gets really foggy and hazy. The buildup to this attack scene is great. I love the way that they don't show you the werewolf ever. You're just completely going off their reactions and there's something so creepy about just them telling you there it is it's in front of us it's on the road but you don't see it you don't know what they're seeing you're just going completely off their body language and their reactions and it's so fucking effective to like build that sense of dread in you the only horror that you're experiencing is all auditory because yeah. you do hear the howling and the, and the growls of the werewolf and you hear it get closer yeah. and that's pretty effective when it comes to a dread feeling so the scene's cutting back and forth between them and the people in the pub. You know, eventually David and Jack start wandering back to the pub. They basically just say, like, fuck it. Like, this thing's chasing us. It's clearly circling us. Like, we're going back. Fuck it. So they turn back, and they kind of start fast walking. And eventually it's kind of right in the middle of the road. And as they're fast walking, fast walking, David trips and falls over. And Jack's like, oh, shit. Turns around. It's like, oh, man, I thought you were gone. Or blah, blah. And then all of a sudden... Wham! Werewolf gets him. Yeah, first jump scare. That's a good jump scare. We're only 16 minutes into this movie, and it's a pretty solid jump scare. There's like two jump scares packed into almost this one scene, because that happens, and Jack just gets fucked up. Then the scene kind of cuts to the werewolf again suddenly, like 45 seconds later, as it then starts to attack David. Again, it's effective jump scare. If you're not super scared of werewolves and you think they're badass like me, I did jump a little, but again, it didn't like bother me. But if you are afraid of big dogs and things like that, yeah, this this scene will terrify oh, yeah. you. Yeah, if you have a fear of like dogs or wolves or anything, this is like a vicious fucking attack. It's super bloody. It's super violent. It's super fast and aggressive as well. So it's it's very intense. As they're attacked again, Jack is killed. Then David is attacked by the same creature. Just before it, like, really goes in for the kill, the wolf is shot. And then you kind of see all of the people that were at the pub, like, circle around him. And as David is laying on the ground, he looks over and sees a naked middle-aged guy with gunshot holes in him. Just like a regular plain-ass dude. That's clearly, like, the werewolf in human form. I replayed that scene, like, that very end of that scene twice because it took me a second to realize, like, oh shit, yeah, that's the wolf. There are lots of moments in this movie where there's, like, surreal edits where you kind of have bits and pieces of things that don't necessarily correlate. And so it kind of throws you off and gives you this weird sense of uneasiness just by putting these things together that your brain can't quite contextualize. But it's very effective. So David eventually wakes up at the hospital. It's a few weeks later, and he's got no memory of that night. He doesn't really remember, like, anything specific 
the police inspectors come by to question him because, of course, Jack was killed. And they told him that they sent his body back. And they say that it was by an escaped lunatic. And David immediately is just like, no, it was not an escaped lunatic at all. It was a wolf. You know, I don't know why they're saying that it was definitely a wolf. It was definitely some kind of animal. So all this time, like, the doctors and nurses are already kind of showing some interest in, like, his case in general. Yeah. A couple things that made me laugh was, again, medicine um, and how it's portrayed in, in films. Like, yeah, if this guy was out three weeks, like, in a coma... He'd be, like, on a ventilator and fucking IV drips and everything. He just would be laying in the yeah. bed like he is. With pajamas on. With pajama, uh, pajamas on. Then the other thing that made me laugh was, and I thought he was going to turn into, like, a bigger character and honestly get killed off later in the movie, but um, the guy from the embassy, Mr. Collins... Frank Oz. ...is such a fuckface. Yeah. Yeah. That guy is such an asshole in this movie. He was only in this one scene, unfortunately. I really wanted to see more of him because he reminded me of the guy from Ghostbusters, the... A city inspector who tries to get them shut down. I forget that guy's name. Walter Peck, I think. Well, so like we've joked before, like the 80s was just full of corporate douchebag villains. And so he kind of fits that mold as well. But yeah, I love Frank Oz in general and his weird round head. He just always sounds kind of like Kermit, no matter what yes. I think. <laughs> I really thought he was going to, because he, he acts like such an asshole in the scene. And I really thought this was just all set up for him to like be throughout the movie, like a part throughout the movie and then get completely eviscerated by a werewolf, yeah. uh, David. One of the things that is that I think about Frank Oz's character that is one of the special things about this movie is that even these small parts, you're right, he's only in this one scene, but even these small parts, you get a sense of that character it's not just you know a dull throwaway person who comes in with a clipboard like no he gets mad because he feels like he's not being appreciated for arranging for his parents to come over and see him you yeah know, he has a he has a real motivation and you get that sense of a character even though he's on screen for less than a minute and i really appreciate that that this movie takes care with even the smallest parts you know you can think of later on parts like uh the people oh. that have been killed by the werewolf the six kind of ghosts that come back and they are all so funny and it's small parts but you get a sense of those characters and that's a lot of a lot of care this movie has taken to develop them the hospital really good the hospital orderly that delivers the food yep and the benjamin the little kid kid that's in the bed that just screams no at everything like yeah those characters are all so good and they're just they're not in the story. They're not in the, like, plot of this story, but they're all just so well-drawn and give it so much color that you normally wouldn't have in a movie like this at all. Kind of during this initial bit in the hospital, we're also introduced to Dr. Hirsch, played by John Woodvine, and most importantly, Nurse Alex Price, played by Jenny Agutter. Um, and the other nurse who needs to learn consent that you don't sneak a peek at someone's wee-wee just because you're curious, right? Yes. <laughs> That's actually a really good point. Also, like, probably breaking HIPAA in some ways. I wasn't probably. I wasn't trying to look for... Sometimes when I watch movies that have, like, medicine in them, like Doctor Strange and things like that, I'll try and, like, look for moments where they're in the medical scenes, and I'm like, this is a HIPAA violation. I wasn't paying attention that much during this movie, I'm afraid, but if there were any HIPAA violations, I'm sure that other nurse was the one involved. <laughs> Actually, you mentioned Doctor Strange. That's kind of hilarious, because when we went and saw Doctor Strange, Heather was just angry the entire rest of the 
that movie because right at the beginning, you know, somebody was just like, oh yeah, there's a guy that like also got his hands fi- or like his legs fixed. Come on by. I'll give you his medical files. His entire medical record. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> there was just like, fuck that. That's not how it works. Yeah. And she was Don't just, get me fucking started on that because yeah. I'm the same way as you. She <laughs> was just angry through the entire rest of that movie. But yeah, we're introduced to these characters immediately you can tell that there's like a little something going on between nurse alex and david again like it's very natural from the beginning and we see it kind of naturally build from there from here um we kind of see you know nurse alex going about her regular duties again she's dealing with kids in the the children's ward and kind of interacting with various people throughout the hospital. One one other scene that I love right here in the beginning is uh, the Scotland Yard detective that's just so bumbling. Yeah. Where yeah. he like, knocks yep. over all the bedpans. That's a good touch, yeah. yeah. Yep. This is a full range of human emotions movie, right? It has its scary parts. You know, we're talking about how funny it is, all these little side characters that are so funny. But it's also, you know, really scary. And then you have this romance that to me feels real, really believable. And that's, I think, one thing that's great about this movie is that it's not one note. It does the comedy well. It does the horror well. It does the romance well. It's like such a whole package. So... And we'll get to one scene specifically that I, I want to get y'all's insight on. But I kind of had to stop myself because I was like, as I was going through the movie, I was just like, I was finding myself being like, actually, like, yeah, I'm on board with them being into each other. Like, it's telegraphed from the very beginning. I mean, you just know that they're going to, like, fall in love and there's almost going to be, like, this Frankenstein-esque tragedy by the end of it. I, like, I had to stop myself and I was thinking in my head, I was like, may- and maybe because it's a tight movie or maybe it just does this on purpose, did y'all question at all, is this movie moving too quick to be believable because I didn't when I was watching it and I kind of had to step back and sort of ask that question on purpose just to analyze it some more but no I don't I don't think so either because you'll notice at you know when they first get together it's not I love you oh I love you you know what I mean it's not staring into each other's eyes it's like I need somewhere to stay can I come stay with you you know what I mean I'm not even talking about the whole movie romance Mm -hmm. because like all the stuff outside the hospital actually is believable to me even more so I'm just talking about like them going from we don't know each other at all to we're basically we know we're going to hook up like all just within the hospital. And granted, I think there are some time skips that we see in scenes. Mm-hmm. So maybe like there's a lot of in between that like they leave unsaid. Yeah. I think if there was emotion, like if they were making emotional declarations to each other, it would seem unearned. Yeah. But it's not. What you see is physical chemistry of two people that frankly just want to fuck. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> and the, yeah. you and that's would know that that's, pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. That's ultimately like the conclusion I came yeah. to too. But I did want to ask y'all that question too, just to make sure I wasn't like crazy. No. <laughs> there is also the dynamic of... And Jenny Agutter, like, literally spells this out in the movie. But there's also this element of he's kind of a wounded guy and she kind of likes taking care of him. She likes that idea of, like, kind of babying him a little bit and he's totally down with being babied, you know? So maybe that's kind of where the initial attraction starts because there is that immediate, like, physical dynamic there. And then that's very easy to move from that dynamic into just straight up we're fucking now. Yes. And on that line, so me being 
former English major, you know, listening to Nurse Price, Alex Price's dialogue made me think of this great poem uh, by Marilyn Hacker, which is called She Bitches About Boys. There's a line from this poem that is like stuck in my head and totally came up in this movie. It's girls love a sick child or a healthy animal, a man who's both itches them like an incubus. And that is this story in a (laughs) nutshell. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's actually a really nails it. Because like, yeah, because you're totally right. Both y'all are totally right. Like he's comes in like he just lost his friend. He was just injured. He has nowhere to go. He's kind of stuck in London at this point. And uh, and yeah, that, that that's good. I did write down though, like her dating a patient would be a huge. No-no. Oh, totally. <laughs> I actually like wrote that in my notes to ask you. So, how many patients did Nurse Day One fuck? Yeah, like if if they were like if anyone was that open about it, yeah, you're insta fired. Later on in the movie, like she's not hiding the fact that she's keeping him at his at her place no. like, when the doctor calls and everything. And I'm just thinking in my mind, I'm like, Jesus, you would be reported so fast. Yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah, anyway. I think part of why this movie is like especially catnip for me, I am not like a huge ro- rom-com person. I like romance stories, but you know, it's not not my favorite genre or anything. But that line where she's talking to him and she's like, "You're very attractive and a little bit sad." That to me is the catnip combo that I love in a romance story, you know? We're all Mass Effect fans here. Part of why I like the Caden romance so much is because he's just so sad. You know, this is definitely like the masturbating in the shower type guy because he's sad that Shepard is dead. You know what I mean? (laughs) The more I can get the like sad dude in a romance, it's not necessarily what I want in an actual romantic partner. Like some things are more fun to read about or watch than actually experience in your life. But in a story, that's my catnip. And so that's part of why I go so crazy for this movie. So much more yeah. sense to, as to like why you liked Caden. <laughs> exactly. Because like I'd always kind of wondered about yeah. that myself. Yeah. To me as like a hetero <laughs> guy, I'm like, Caden sucks. <laughs> yeah. I, just the like sad piney story. It's just like, yes, yes, yeah. be sad. <laughs> I honestly appreciate the character so much more now that you like brought that to my attention. <laughs> and see, like I always picked up on that about Caden. I just still didn't go for it. So I'm just like, dude, shut the fuck up. Get over yourself. Yeah. The whole time he's just like, Ugh, I've got so many headaches. Uh, yeah. Emotions. Yeah. Headaches. My biotics. Uh, just yeah. wish somebody were here to calm me down. Like, it's, <laughs> God, shut the fuck yeah. up. Get off my ship. <laughs> now, granted, he's still a better character than the guy in It Follows because yeah, the guy really. in It Follows felt way too much like nice guy TM, whereas Caden and David in this movie are on the same wavelength of being like wounded guys, but they're not like nice guy TM mm-hmm. about it. They, yeah. they seem very genuine. And you know, there are some things, like I was saying, you know, this is something that you enjoy, or at least I enjoy in a story. You know, if Aaron was really like that in real life, at some point I'd be like, boy, you need to get a therapist. Like, I'm not your therapist. I can't have these conversations with you. But I think you can enjoy things in fiction. That's why fiction is fun, right? You can enjoy things that you know aren't good for you in real life. You know, God bless yeah. fanfic. <laughs> so, from here, David again is, you know, still at the hospital. And this is kind of where things things start to get a little surreal. He has some weird nightmare sequences, the first of which is just 
crazy monster shit stabbing Nurse Price in the hospital room. I think the the very first one he has is like it's the camera it's done from like a first person point of view and it's like running through the woods. Yeah, there's like there's like the regular wolf ones that you keep seeing these flashes of. But the the one that was like the most surreal and also kind of it could be a jump scare to some. It was more comical to me was the one where like it was, shows a deer and then like David jumps on the, on the deer naked. <laughs> Yeah, completely naked and, like, starts ripping it apart. Honestly, the thing that creeped me out the most in this entire movie was the dream where she was walking up to him to take care of him, and then it flashes, like, that Bilbo Baggins, like, give me the ring face. Yeah, the it's like the blue face with the teeth and the yeah. eyes, yeah. Yeah, that is the scariest part in this entire movie to me. That, that takes place about the 28 minute and 30 second mark. It was, even now, even though it is kind of goofy looking, like, as a still... It's still freaky when it happens because it's one of those like... It's almost subliminal. Yeah, it hangs on that shot for like a minute. I mean, not, not a minute, a second. And then like, it's done. So he keeps having these very surreal dream sequences. The last one is the most ridiculous, which is a kind of out of context scene where it's clearly his parents' house and he's there with his siblings and his mom and dad. And all of a sudden there's like this violent knocking on the door and his dad goes to get the door. And there's just a bunch of weird, like, monster Nazis. And they start just machine-gunning the house and murdering all the (laughs) siblings. And, you know, they set fire to the house. I know that they're supposed to be, like, maybe halfway transformed werewolves that are, like, Nazi werewolf people. But just the costume design and everything, it's awesome. It's fucking great. But it's so over the top that, like, it it feels like it's straight out of a 70s B-horror movie. And I loved this scene. This entire scene is awesome. It feels just like a Rick Baker gets to show off scene, honestly, which I'm fine with. Well, it kind of is because... He plays the, like, werewolf Nazi that holds the knife to David's throat and slits his throat. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was just kind of like a weird, like, so there's a purpose to all these weird dreams. Wait, do we assume assume that your listeners know who Rick Baker is? Should we say that Rick Baker is the effects guy that did all the makeup? Yes, Rick Baker is, like, the legendary makeup effects artist. Yeah, we should have mentioned that earlier. Well, I guess I did by mentioning that he won an Oscar for that specifically. But, yeah, he's great. I mean, he's done so much stuff over the years. He's easily, I think, probably overall my favorite makeup artist. So he's done a wide range of really interesting stuff. So the purpose of these very surreal dreams, literally the next scene, again, we have these edits that are very, like non-congruous. So immediately after having another one of these nightmares, we cut to a scene where David's back in his bed in the hospital and he wakes up and then Jack is in the corner. And Jack is just like hanging out. Yeah, it's unsettling. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Jack is dead. He's all ripped open, he's all bloody, his neck is all gouged out, his face is all scarred up. The flappy skin that's hanging off. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. So He's just there, and he's just all mauled and gross, and you don't necessarily know if what you're watching is another weird, surreal dream or not. There was even another moment where, you know, he wakes up from one dream and is just in another dream. You have all these dream fake-outs... And then you get to the scene with Jack, and so you're not really sure, like, wait, are you? Is this a dream, or is this not a dream? So Jack is basically there, and Jack is very self-aware with the whole thing. He's just like, yo, I'm dead, so there's that. I was killed by a werewolf. You're gonna become a werewolf. Uh, so you need to kill yourself. 
because that's the only way to break the curse. And I'm now stuck in limbo because of that. Yeah, this is basically an exposition dump scene, but unlike other exposition dumps, I really liked this scene because the whole time David is kind of freaking out, not believing it and being like, I'm going insane, I'm going insane. Jack is acting like his sarcastic, self-aware self. And like like you were saying, Heather, that I even wrote down a note, like the skin hanging from his neck and how it like kind of flaps as he's talking yeah. is so well done and gross and awesome. Awesome. The makeup is so good. Mm-hmm. All the stuff he was describing to David about like how werewolves work in this movie's universe was fascinating to me. Like, yeah, anyone who's killed by a werewolf becomes a ghost stuck on the earthly plane. They can't move on to the afterlife until the werewolf that killed them is the curse is broken and they, they die. So many horror movies try to, like I've talked about, they try to bury the lead or like create the mystery or hide it. And I think a lot of people confuse that with having a good movie or a good story. And this is such an interesting juxtaposition to that idea because there are no punches pulled there's no hide the ball in this movie you know it tells you straight out this is how it works this is what it's about here we go and it's you know it's still a great movie so you don't have to play all that what's the mystery you know it doesn't have to be confusing yeah to compare and contrast it to one of the last movies we uh, we did was Mothman Prophecies also has kind of an exposition dump scene and I like that one too but only because of the actor that's playing like the crazy professor but it still is like nonsensical bullshit and annoying in that way. This is the way you want to do an exposition dump scene where like you were saying, don't bury the lead and don't be like cryptic for the sake of just being cryptic. Like, no, yeah. like just explain it. Do it in a way that's interesting. The way that's interesting is he's literally a rotting ghost right in front of his, his friend. And there you go. Yeah. yeah. And I wasn't being glib earlier when I described that scene. I mean, he almost word for word is just like, yep. I'm dead. I was killed by a werewolf. You're going to become a werewolf. Like, it's just that matter of fact when he's presenting it to him. Yeah, Griffin Dunn is, again, Jack Goodman is my favorite character in this movie. Griffin Dunn is so good. One line that I, like, specifically wrote down that he says this scene is just, Have you ever talked to a corpse? It's boring. (laughs) And I love that line. Like, it's just so dumb and ridiculous. My favorite one was when he was talking about, like, yeah, they had a funeral. It was pretty nice. A lot more people showed up than I thought. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, your parents showed up. And then, like, but then he, like, goes back to, like, the girl he was either hooking up with or interested in. And Mm -hmm. he's just like, yep, she went after so-and-so and, and, like, wind up hooking up with him instead. Yeah, that fucking asshole just (laughs) swoops in. Yeah, I can't even get respect in death or, like, something (laughs) like that. And I thought that was hilarious. So, you know, obviously David having had all these weird dreams is just like, okay, yeah, this is not real. Jack, you're full of shit. I'm not turning into a werewolf. This is ridiculous. He starts bashing the call light, screaming for help, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and so this leads up to the scene that I I referenced twice that I wanted to get y'all's insight to it. So he's bashing on the call light, and Nurse Price runs into his room, and he's on the call light almost sobbing. She comes in, she's like, David, David, what is it? And he turns around and kisses her. How do y'all feel about that? Because that was the part where I texted Mansfield, this is the weirdest romance ever. Because it's one of those romances where, like, all this is working for me when, in reality, it shouldn't. But it somehow still is. The way this kiss happens is, like, the climax of that idea for me. In reality, this would be, like, sexual assault. But... In the context of this movie, it works, but why does it work? Because it's so weird. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying, and I do think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about him being sad and she likes it, right? These are not the qualities you want in an actual partner, you know what I mean? But it works in a movie well enough. 
I am a firm believer that, you know, things like nonverbal consent are for established partners. You know, when you know somebody, that's fine. When you don't, uh, you should be talking to them before you do things like that. Again, I think it, it works in the movie. It doesn't feel forced to me because you have, you know, seen them definitely showing interest in each other. And I'm basically over here, like, swooning on my fainting couch about it. But totally agree that... Uh, in real life, this is not something you would actually want to do or that, you know, if somebody did this to you, I don't think you'd be like, yeah, great. Like violate all your professional boundaries. Please do this. Yeah. Just to go, yeah, just to go from like freaking out using the nurse call light to get her attention and then trying to make out with her immediately. Totally. Like a Shannon's room. Yeah. In reality, it like is fucking creepy and no, don't do that. That's bad. But in the movie and in the context of this, you're right. It just works. And there were time skips. Like, you know, there were parts where he was begging the doctor to have somebody in his room at all, all times after he saw Jack and so she's the one in his room kind of hanging out with him and mm -hmm. yeah he's been in the hospital for at least a few days and like they've been interacting like every single day my take on that moment and granted like Heather just said this is not behavior you would necessarily do in real life because you'll get in trouble but my take on it's this think about that situation from a gender flipped perspective in any other movie you have the female patient freaking out calling for help and who arrives but the prince charming nurse that she's kind of been into and has been nurse kind of into her this day whole time. <laughs> yes nurse day one and imagine like that's the person that shows up and she goes in for that kiss to him that's totally normal. You've seen that in a bunch of movies. You've seen that in a bunch of rom-coms, and nobody bats an eye about that necessarily. Again, normal in a movie. It's no yeah, normal in a movie. That's that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. it's from a storytelling standpoint, you've seen that situation gender flipped a bunch of times. But because the dynamic is different here, where again he's the helpless patient and she's the like nurse in charge taking mm -hmm. care of him, it seems more odd than it normally does. Yeah. I think. And I think the other thing that we can know about the movie is that we see from the course of the movie, and even up to that point, she really does like him. Yeah. And so it's not sexual assault if both parties are consenting to it. If Aaron kissed me and I didn't know about it, it wouldn't be assault because he's my husband and I'm fine with that. Again, we shouldn't use that as an excuse to not get explicit consent, especially with new partners or something like that. But in the context of the movie, again, you can't call it sexual assault because it's clearly not something that she yeah. is opposed to. You know what I mean? And you were right. Like, they just want to fuck like, yeah. the entire movie. <laughs> like, and, uh, yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that. They're yeah. adults consenting and they both want to like get groovy so mm -hmm. have at it but in real life you should always ask particularly with new and partners in real life right? you shouldn't fuck your patients yeah. yes none of that <laughs> <laughs> probably not that's um, rule number one <laughs> well yeah no i'm glad that we kind of took some time to just get to that aside because um i was watching a movie loved it everything worked for me and then as i was digesting the movie and thinking more about it over the week after i watched it i kept going back to that scene being like is that scene problematic it didn't feel problematic at all to me when i was watching it in reality yeah i understand how it could be problematic but i can also separate reality from fiction and in the context of movie so again i just wanted to double check that and run that by y'all too just to make sure i wasn't like the only one being like i'm totally on board with this in the context of the movie even though in reality it's problematic and yeah i don't think it's problematic in context of the story because 
A, we have all the context of their relationship, first of all. Right. B, Nurse Price is an actual character. Like, she is an actual character even by this point. So it's not just the hot nurse that the dude character goes in for a kiss with, you know? Yeah, if this was, if this was American Pie or Van Wilder even, yeah, then it would yeah. be, like, rapey. Yeah. <laughs> It's not at all the same dynamic. So from here, Dr. Hirsch basically says, I've got to see to some things. I'm going to be gone for a little while. And that's where, like you mentioned earlier, David basically says, like, cool, I want somebody to stay with me. Dr. Hirsch kind of picks up on the wink wink and he's like, cool, I, I gotcha, bro. And so then you see like Nurse Price sitting with him while he's sleeping. Dr. Hirsch, the wingman of the century. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he clearly gets what's going on between them. <laughs> Um, and this is one of my favorite scenes where she's sitting and reading a book and he's in bed sleeping and he kind of slowly wakes up and just watches her for a minute and is clearly like really enamored with her while he's staring at her and she, you know, realizes that he's now awake and they start talking and she reads to him a passage from the book that she's reading. And it's just a very good character moment that 90% of horror movies would not slow down to take. So I really, I really like that little quiet moment between them yes for sure and i mean and it's well learned because we've been like zero to 60 so far and even this quiet moment doesn't take long they don't waste any time but yeah we had just had like the nazi wolf hallucination scene yeah and then jack showing up undead so yeah and it's it's such a swoon scene too because you know it's like aaron was saying it's quiet and so you get you know you get why she's attracted to him you get why he's attracted to her you know you're like oh nurse like take care of me but also like oh he's a dreamboat like of course she wants to take him home you know just everything clicks in your head at least for me (laughs) so what dr hirsch is actually doing is he's driving to the village where the guys were because he's now genuinely intrigued by david's whole story about like no i was attacked by a wolf so dr hirsch kind of takes it upon himself to look into this a little bit so he drives to the village and goes to the slaughtered lamb he's trying his best to kind of fit in there but again the locals are kind of stonewalling him a little bit he kind of beats around the bush a little bit and they put up that front and then eventually he does just straight up come out and say like oh yeah what about those two boys that were attacked you know the one that got murdered you know the ones that were attacked by a wolf and that's when they're just like all right enough of this get the fuck out and as he's leaving the guy from earlier in the movie that was throwing the darts approaches him and is like yo i shouldn't be talking to you but yeah you got the right hunch bad stuff's happened here this place is cursed just make sure you watch out for him he's a danger to those around him blah blah blah. and then the pub goer guy that was talking all the shit's like yo get the fuck out of here and he runs off so dr hirsch definitely like knows something is up David's about to be discharged, and he basically just kind of throws out there like, yo, uh, Nurse Price, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to have somewhere to stay till I can, like, get back home, dot, dot, dot. And, of course, she's just like, well, I happen to, like, have a place, dot, dot, dot. And no roommates. Yeah. <laughs> so it's their interactions in this like little moment are kind of hilarious because it's just a bunch of dot dot dot. <laughs> and then even at one point he's just like, "So you don't have like a boyfriend?" Dot dot dot. She's just like, "No." Dot dot dot. <laughs> yeah. He goes with her to her apartment, and she kind of gives him the grand tour of her apartment, showing him each room little by little, and eventually gets to the bedroom. She has all the plants. And... She's so nurturing. Oh. Yeah. 
just <laughs> books and plants everywhere. Yeah. I might say that I love her character and she is gorgeous in this movie, but to me that apartment is boring as fuck. It's <laughs> <laughs> like my dream apartment, like London apartment surrounded by books, plants. You have your weird Mickey Mouse statue and some like quilts in actuality it's it would be awesome but like again and just me watching the movie i'm like i was expecting more for some reason (laughs) well so i think that's part of the charm of the movie is yeah your brain is expecting this like no way you can fucking afford this apartment like everything's way too fucking fancy but oh yeah this is a movie but it's not like it's totally just like a regular bullshit target furnished apartment that any of us would have yeah, yeah. you're totally right because my, my my brain is trained on movies and tv shows of just being like oh yeah i'm a school teacher at a school and i live in this three-story house and right. drive a new camaro somehow yeah. yeah so when they're when she's showing him around of course they get to the bedroom and he's like but there's one bed and she's like uh no shit dot 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 so then it kind of you know immediately cuts to them having sex well she's like i love the way she does it because she's just like i gotta take a shower oh, yeah, i'm yeah, gonna yeah, take right. a shower wink 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 <laughs> yeah. again just yeah. the dot dot dots in this movie and they start off naked in the shower actually yeah so you see them like doing some foreplay in the shower and then eventually you know they make it to the bed this scene was apparently trimmed down a little bit to be less explicit um so i'm curious like what was in it yeah because it's pretty explit they don't show too much like they i don't even think they really show there's not uh, a lot of explicit clearly nudity. he's given her head though yeah like clearly yeah. he's given yeah. you know and so oh, totally, one yeah. that's great to see in a movie but like two that the mpaa has a history of cutting women receiving pleasure explicitly yes because somehow that's not something that we can watch in a movie yes that's yeah. that's totally totally a thing and i'm kind of glad that they like made the cuts they did because yeah the sex scene is really super sexy yeah already and it's not overly explicit no. like that's kind of what i like about it. like that chemistry between them is already so good and the way that the sex scene is shot it's done in a way where it's like not exploitative no. and it's not it's kind of sweet yeah yeah it's it's just yeah. like really sweet and you like these characters and it's just genuinely sexy yeah. but it's it doesn't have to like be overly sexual which i appreciate starting here and into the next several scenes like there's a bunch of like moon related songs yes like from the of the soundtrack and like i think it was what van morrison yeah moon uh, dance moon dance uh, yeah. during the sex scene which was great and then it like goes from that to um the credence Clearwater yeah. song my note for that is literally moon dance is a jam like yes. <laughs> such a yeah. good song oh yeah it's a it's a bang jam yeah. like that's that's for sure but and no, again, I like, love... this movie's not subtle about anything and yeah. the music is absolutely one yeah. of those things. It goes, it goes from moon dance to bad moon rising to two different or to I think maybe one version of Sam Cooke's Blue Moon and then yeah. Blue Moon is played at the end credits. Yeah. Again, it's not subtle about anything. No. So David Naughton this cements his dreamboat status with him being a giving lover in the bedroom too. So you feel really justified in being like, yeah, dreamboat. <laughs> so David gets up to go pee, um, which is something that everybody should do after having intercourse to, you know, keep from having UTIs. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Um, yep. So... Yeah, he gets up to go pee. Fun fact about the nudity in this movie that I want to throw out real quick, which I didn't know. David Naughton was a spokesperson for Dr. Pepper for many years before this movie, right? So, you know, man of good taste. 
Dot Dr. Pepper being the, the beverage created by God himself. But apparently after this movie, they cut ties with him because they did not approve of all the nudity in the film. Dr. Pepper is apparently more prudish than I knew. Now granted, I still love Dr. Pepper, but yeah. boo, boo yeah. 1981 Dr. Pepper. Right? Just because David Naughton wanted to show his Dr. Pepper doesn't mean that, like, <laughs> he should be fired, but, yeah, sure. I hope the actor David Naughton from here on out calls his dick Dr. Pepper. <laughs> uh, anyway, as he gets up to pee and he's going back to bed, we have the second appearance of Jack. Kind of a jump scare again, because it's, it's yeah. that horror trope of, like, it's one of those mirrors where you, like, like it doesn't show anything at first in the bathroom mirror, and then when he, like, closes the vanity in the mirror, there's the hallucination of the creepy thing in behind the person. Yeah, you see Jack right behind him. And he's more rotting. Like, they only reference it, like, oh, you look like shit, like, but otherwise they don't tell you why Jack is rotting more. It's just kind of hinted that, like, I guess this is part of the process of, like, when you're trapped in limbo, of, like, your soul just continues to rot until like the werewolf is dead but yeah he looks more horrific in this this scene yeah and i i love this moment in general and i got i like that his makeup kind of evolves through the course of the movie to the point where like you know the third time we see him he's literally just an animatronic half skeleton but i really really like that aspect it's just another way to showcase rick baker's crazy talent it's also just a practical thing because they filmed this movie in sequence which is very very rarely done in movies where they like actually film in the order that the you know scenes happen it's not like they could just do his gross makeup from that first scene and then immediately jump to filming like the second and the third scene while he has that gross makeup on you know all in like one maybe two days so it just makes sense that you would have stage one makeup for one scene and then have stage two makeup for the next scene when you, you know, have to have him back again. But God, that makeup looks so good. Like, even today, in high def, in a 4K restoration, that makeup looks so fucking good. So, Jack shows back up again, and basically just kind of gives him that last warning of like, look, you blew me off the first time, but I'm telling you, you're a werewolf. You're gonna be a werewolf tomorrow when the full moon hits. You are going to, like, cause harm and kill people if you don't off yourself now. Griffin Dunn's matter-of-a-fact Jack character is just so well done. Like, right before, like, they get into the serious stuff, he's like, oh, a nurse, huh? Nice. Like, yeah. just, like, total bro. <laughs> and yeah, like, anytime he's... It's not, like, a, a haunting haunting, like, the ghost is terrorizing David. No, he's still treating him like his best friend. It's just that he's just like, hey, look, I know this sucks, but you have to kill yourself because you're gonna kill other people if you don't and then their souls are gonna be stuck and i love david's line there you know in response which was i will not be threatened by a walking meatloaf <laughs> yeah kind of an interesting thing is because then at this point alex wakes up and she like walks into the room and I love that she's, like, wearing one of his shirts. Yes! I noted that, too. It's so Yeah, cute. she's wearing, like, the NYU shirt, I think. And, yeah. uh, and she was just like, is everything okay? I heard voices. And I thought that that line was interesting, that she said... She didn't say, I heard you talking. She said, I heard voices. Yes. So it makes me wonder if, oh, shit, Jack is real. I think so. Yeah, I think so, too. 
Yeah, same. That was kind of the whole point of having the weird dreams earlier is that it kind of throws you off about whether or not Jack as an apparition is something that he's just imagining in his head and it's just these delusions and this anxiety about whether the werewolf part of it's real or Jack's actually a specter and you're actually going to be a fucking werewolf. So, and other movies that are are that are all about subtlety where it works. Cool. I'm all about that. But again, this movie is so in your face and not subtle. Great. I yeah. love that this scene basically reveals that Jack is for real. He is literally a walking corpse guy that yeah. manifests around David. Then he goes on to have this conversation with Alex and again talking about how unsubtle this movie is. They start talking about werewolf lore and a direct quote from that conversation. I think a werewolf can only be killed by someone who loves him. Like, you know, right there, this movie is telling you what it's about and this is telling yeah. you exactly what's going to happen, but it's a testament to the movie that you kind of know exactly where it's going and you're still so captivated along the way. Yeah. You know, and, not... that they, and that they pull off that directness. Yeah. yeah, I totally forgot about that line and yeah. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, it just another layer to this movie that works. Yeah, the meta-ness of that scene where he like legitimately brings up, you know, the original werewolf movie, like all of, I love all of that to this movie that it's very self-aware of what it's doing. So we cut to the next day. Alex is going to her shift I guess, you know, early in the morning or maybe sometime later in the day. But she basically just says like, hey, you know, are you cool staying by yourself? And he's like, yep, I'm good to go. Go to work. I'll see you later. She leaves. And we basically just see David moping around the apartment. A, a couple things happen too, because he walks her outside and then like she leaves and he gets locked out of the apartment. And then there's that like horror trope of like the animals are unsettled by him. Yeah, the people walking their dog, the dog growls at him. Or the little kids, yeah. Those creepy kids, like, those kids looked so fucking creepy, the ones that were <laughs> laughing at him. Um, but then, like, he, like, sneaks around and, like, finds that her window is is unlocked. So he opens the window. There's a cat by the window perch, and the cat starts hissing at him. Well, when the, when the dog is barking at him, I definitely got the room vibes from that. Because he tells the dog, thanks a lot, dog. And it just reminded me so much of, hi, doggy. <laughs> oh, oh, hi, doggy. <laughs> I was like, can this be my new hi, doggy? <laughs> <laughs> it would have been great if, like, he got to the window and he's, to the cat, he's like, don't touch me. Motherfucker. <laughs> but yeah, and then like when it shows him moping around the apartment, this is where it goes into uh, Bad Moon Rising by yeah. Creedence Clearwater. So first of all, like I love that he's just bored. Yeah. That, that's it. Like he's just fucking bored to this whole scene. You see him flipping through TV, but it's like British TV. So he just like doesn't give a fuck about any of that. <laughs> I love that naked, tr- the naked truth about naughty Nina, Nina Carter's tell all. Yeah. And like Nina Carter is a real person. I looked her up and she's a totally a real person and agreed to like do that part for the movie as like a, a comedic beat. Oh wow, that's funny. Yeah, it was, it, again, it's like the Lycanthropy Films Unlimited. It, it was another one of those things that they just kind of threw into the movie as an extra layer of humor. And I think, like I'd have to go back and listen to it, but I also caught little bits and I could be wrong about this where like the actual dialogue coming off the TV is like very textual as well you know like she says I transformed from a regular person into an actress and I'm living a wild life you know blah blah like yeah, uh, there were is. like bits of that <laughs> going on but I yeah. just love that he's like so fucking bored and he's like literally yep. just like 
doing that thing where you just like lay flat on the ground and you just like kind of worm scrunch your body just because you're that fucking bored there are times that i've been so bored that i wish i could have turned into a fucking werewolf like just to have something to do but yeah all of a sudden we like see the moon through the window of the hospital where we like kind of catch back up with nurse alex and then it cuts back to him just sitting reading a book and immediately like it hits him and he just starts like screaming and freaking out and ripping his shirt off it's a quick cut too it like it is real sudden but the the transformation like you mentioned is by far the most memorable thing in the movie in general i mean we talked about this on an earlier podcast why are there not more werewolf movies and the simple answer is just that werewolf movies really live or die quite often by their transformation scenes and if you don't have a good transformation scene then you're just sunk you know like there's just no way to get around that if the transformation scene is shitty or especially nowadays like if it's just straight up cgi like you just don't care the scene in this movie is so fucking good and it still is to this day again in full high def you know and the fact that they like shot the scene in full light is amazing they didn't shoot it with the lights all turned off to kind of hide some of the seams of the effects it's all done in full light and it's incredible yeah and the song that's playing is um it's a slow version of blue moon it's a weird song choice but it just there's something about it that makes a scene work so well and this scene lasts longer than you think it is yeah it just keeps going and going and you it gets more sickening when he's transforming like his bones literally like extending and cracking from a body horror standpoint it throws me off so bad because yeah you just see like all of his tendons and bones stretching you just hear like the crunching of his bones mm-hmm. morphing and you're just like oh fuck uh, like that it gets to me so bad I, I wrote down naked transformation is awesome and then literally the next thing i wrote down is this transformation is sickening and awesome yeah. <laughs> It is classic for a reason. It is just masterful. You know, there's nothing else you can say about it other than this is incredible work by Rick Baker. Just extremely impressive still today. All practical effects done with all kinds of, you know, pistons under the makeup. It's very, very technical and just pulled off just flawlessly. It's really impressive. There's a part of the Wikipedia article on American Werewolf in London that uh, notes the director's regrets, like Landis's regrets of like what was cut out of the movie and yada yada. And it does say, like, the last the last scene that, like, I guess he has some regrets for is the werewolf transformation scene because he, he thinks that it might have been, he, he should have made it shorter. However, he said he was so fascinated by the quality of Rick Baker's effects in that scene that he just let it go that long. And honestly, I'm glad he kept it that long. Absolutely. If there is one thing to be regretful for, it's not no. that scene. I think that scene needs to be as long as it is, and it's fucking awesome. Well, it also paid off long term for him because Michael fucking Jackson and like saw this movie and immediately was just who the fuck did that makeup who did these special effects who did this fuck it let's do thriller and so yeah john landis like did thriller rick baker did the makeup for thriller it was literally just like michael jackson being like get me these motherfuckers i'm gonna work with them yeah it's it's incredible yeah we wouldn't have gotten arguably the best music video in history without without that transformation scene you know at this point he's fully transformed and you know leaves the apartment which how did he leave the apartment Cause uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because there's no like no destruction. That's like or literally the only plot hole in this movie is just like so, if he's in full wolf mode, like he no. didn't. No, so you see him open the door and then he leaves the living room with the door open, which I can't believe that didn't drive you crazy because you're all like shut the door, lock the door, da 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 da, don't leave things open. He totally leaves that door to the street open. 
Yeah, you're right. He did do that. I am right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> he leaves the door to the street. Well, open. thank you, Heather, because I didn't notice <laughs> yeah, that. No, that. He goes out the door. Yep. Okay. So, anyway, uh, we see him and Wolfform leave, and he starts, like, stalking around. But they don't, they don't like, focus on the werewolf. Like, the way he leaves and everything, it's, like, from different angles. You just hear noises. You you never see. You barely see the werewolf. Yeah. yeah. And it's partly because, like, in at this point, like, the big werewolf animatronic, you have to be strategic in how you you use it in order for it to be effective otherwise it just looks like a giant hairy potato you have to kind of use it in ways that work effectively but i love that it kind of focuses on all these regular everyday people that are being attacked and there's something about that like dry british sense of humor that these people are just so humdrum about everything yeah (laughs) there's the couple that like arrives at another couple's flat to have a dinner party and they're like, oh, look at that dog. Oh, there must be something wrong with him. What? Oh, what's that? Oh, it's coming closer. Look out. And then all of a sudden, just like, attacks them. Yep. And, you yep. know, the couple that is in the flat are looking out. And they're like, where are they? I don't know. And it's like, I'll go look. And he, like, you see the husband, like, wander out. And she's like, oh, shit. And, like, c- comes across the, like, dead body. Yeah, he steps on a hand. Yeah. Like, just. And I love it because he's just, like, swirling his fucking brandy around. Like, slurping yeah. on that as he's walking around looking for you know this other couple we also then see like the you know homeless guys all hanging out in the junkyard they get attacked there's a scene where they go into the the tube the london underground this is my favorite kill of the movie like this whole scene because this is generally it's, it's really unsettling yeah it's comedic and creepy at the same time because so there's this guy who like comes off the the tube and he's like waiting he's the only one in the subway at this point like it's hinted to be like super late at night yeah but yeah he basically like hears the growling and starts kind of making his way out and it starts stalking him and he's actively like running from it but it's in those very tight tunnels in the tube system and you don't see the werewolf again you're just kind of seeing his reactions to all of it there are certain shots where like the camera is the one chasing him like it is the werewolf yeah you're, you're seeing, like, POV from the werewolf. And he eventually, like, runs and just full-body fucking, like, jumps onto, like, the escalator that's going up out of the tube. And to me, this is, like, the most unsettling scene because you see, like, from a high-up vantage point... Um, up the escalator you see him just kind of slowly rolling up and he's turned around on his back to look behind him and you just see like on the very edge of the frame very far away so you can't see all the details you just see like the werewolf creeping up on him yeah that's that was the creepiest part of that entire scene for me and it's just so surreal because you see kind of how big it is too yeah it's the very first time you really actually see the fully transformed david he's like almost all the way at the top of the escalator and even though that like he is at least in our minds he's far away from it the fact that it's like this unseen well not unseen force now this unseen force coming into view chasing him you still f- get the feeling that this guy is totally fucked even though he has like a giant lead on the, on the werewolf yeah so it cuts to the next morning we see david wake up in the zoo so the werewolf attacks like start just after like the hour mark and like kind of happen here and there until about hour 10 minutes in so just fyi there are about like four or five jump scares again of like quiet quiet then oh shit suddenly werewolf in your face roar be ready for that but again they're not that bad yeah and during that whole montage of him killing all these people um it's cutting back and forth between nurse price and dr hirsch and you know they're going back and forth on like where is david they're trying to call the flat and they 
can't get him. So they know that he's missing. And they know, like, because of his condition and everything else, they're concerned and they're trying to track him down and find him, but they can't. So David wakes up the next morning and he's in the uh, wolf enclosure at the zoo. Um, Because, of course, that's where you would go if you were a wolf. You'd go shag off and go to sleep with all your wolf bros. I I loved loved how all the other animals were, like, obviously terrified of him, except the wolves. The wolves are like, yeah, "Yeah, bro, you're part of our pack. (laughs) In reality, that scene was filmed in, like, one take. Because David Naughton was just like, cool, I'm not getting back in there with those fucking wolves. <laughs> completely naked. Yeah, completely yeah. naked. Yeah. So that was all like one complete shot. So he's running around the damn zoo trying to get out. And this is where like, honestly, like some of the funniest shit is to me. Because he's just yeah. running around naked from like hiding spot to hiding spot. But there's the part where he dashes into the bushes and is trying to get that kid's attention with the balloons. <laughs> just like, <laughs> or, like, it was almost like a child abductor kind of vibes and it, but it was done in such a way that it was fucking hilarious um i i also wrote down that this is again like this whole entire bit of like him running around trying to get like pieces of clothing to like hide himself this is another anxiety moment for me because i have had that dream of like i'm naked out in public i'm the only one who seems to realize i'm naked out in public mm-hmm. yeah but i'm still trying to hide it from everybody even though everyone's yep. pretending like i'm not naked and that's exactly what this the scene is like no one's i mean a couple people kind of get a glance at him but it's for comedic effect but for the most part no one's batting like he's doing either such a good job of like solid snaking his way through the zoo or just people are not paying attention so i get the vibe that like when he goes up to the old lady the old lady just kind of looks at him but not super surprised i get the vibe that it's just kind of like oh these crazy americans yeah. or whatever <laughs> yeah maybe yeah. she just appreciates some excitement in her old age yeah <laughs> see that that is the way i took that scene i was like she kind of liked the view so like, that's yeah. why she was didn't really care but yeah i love the scene where he like convinces that kid to give him the balloons because he's just like yeah i'll give you two pounds and that kid's like motherfucker like you're a goddamn bush why are you gonna give me two pounds (laughs) but um you know he takes the balloons and of course runs off you know with the balloons covering his dick and i just love that moment where he just like goes up to that random lady it's just like hey lady a naked american man stole my balloons (laughs) and then you see the balloons just float up like it's that perfect just it's just like such a dumb moment, but it's great. And then he steals that woman's clothing, and he's wearing like women's clothing. Getting back to, uh, is he? He's trying to get back to the apartment, right? Right. Yeah, he's just trying to get back. But yeah, he like swipes that lady's jacket in a very like Ferris Bueller moment as he's <laughs> running through the zoo. He makes it back to the apartment, all said and done, you know, and just kind of blows it off. Even Nurse Price is just like, oh, yeah, well, you know, so glad that you're back. Even though you walked in naked in just in women's clothing. I, that was <laughs> yeah. the one part where I was just like, all right, Nurse Price, I know you're really into him and I, I, yeah. I'm on board with that. But wouldn't you at least ask him like a little bit about like, why are you showing up home naked except for like a woman's yeah. coat? Yeah. yeah, I have, and I, I wrote down to like, he shows back up after missing all night. Yeah, again. <laughs> claims to have no memory, and she's just like, yeah, fine, lol, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like she has, like, that was, honestly, that's the really the only part of this movie that bothered me. But again, it was kind of just like, eh, whatever, fine. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. a minor gripe. Sure enough, like, Dr. Hirsch the next day is looking at all the papers, and all the papers are like, mad animal murders people, six dead. And he's just like, oh, dear lord. <laughs> he's missing yeah. all night, has no memory, and all's fine. Okay, you and I have listened to the last podcast. 
fucking Richard Chase. That dude ran around a fucking neighborhood for an afternoon and murdered like six, seven people and like played in their guts in less time than this dude had to like run around the entire night potentially murdering people all through London, right? It's just, it did kind of like crack me up that, you know, he shows back up and she's just like, cool, whatever. Shit's been weird this whole time, so it'll continue <laughs> to be weird. It's like all those moments where like the police pull over the serial killer and the body's literally like in the trunk and yeah. totally like nothing happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> So at this point, David starts to, as as they talk about it, like he sees the papers, he starts to realize that Jack was right. He's become a werewolf. He knows that everything that Jack told him wasn't bullshit. He freaks the fuck out. Yeah, he finally starts like really freaking out and breaking down. Dr. Price and David are walking through the city. And at one point, he just finally says, like, fuck it. I have to take myself out of the the situation. So he's, like, trying to get himself arrested by, like, talking shit to this policeman. And, like, being loud and obnoxious and cursing. And, like, literally, like, being aggressive toward the police officer. And it cracks me up because that, that, like, British Bobby has way more chill than American police do. Because he's just like, oh, whatever. This guy's full of frump. Yeah. Um... (laughs) So, like, he can't even get himself arrested. Yeah, which I I did write down, like, all you really had to do was maybe slap the police officer. Yeah, just punch him. (laughs) Just slap him. Like, that's all you had to do. Like, it's not that hard to get arrested. (laughs) He treats it like, it's impossible to even get arrested. And it's just like, no, you're just not trying hard enough. (laughs) So, he literally just, like, runs away from Alex. He basically just, like, says, fuck it. Like, I gotta get away from you before I harm you. So he, like, runs off. And we cut to him later at Piccadilly Circus in a phone booth. And he's calling his family from a phone booth to, like, just basically say goodbye. Mm. Yeah, this is a pretty sad scene. It is. It's really sad. Again, if we're talking about, like, fear and why this movie's effective, like, there's something to be said about, like, facing your own mortality. Whether it's through sickness You know, at some point, like, if you have an operable cancer or brain tumor, like, you have to deal with that. And you have to, like, make peace with your fate and say your goodbyes and, like, prepare yourself for what's about to come. And that's terrifying. There is something inherently scary about being an unperson, you know, and just not being there and being there for the people that you love. So, you know, this scene is super effective because you like this character. You feel, you know, all the things that he's felt throughout this movie, the ups and downs and the good and the bad. And so this scene of him literally having to just, like, say goodbye is really disheartening. And you you hear everything from only his perspective. Like, you can yeah. kind of tell there's a voice on the other end. You only hear his voice, but even just from, like, the things he's saying, it's such a believable scene of just, oh, obviously the little brother or little sister sibling has answered the phone, and, like, he's usually just really sarcastic with her and, like, picks on her because he's the older sibling. And she, at first, like, thinks he's joking when he's, like, you know, tell mom and dad I love them, I love you. And he's, like, still calling her like by the nickname yeah and he but then he's like no seriously like i wanted to let you know that i love you and he's like no i'm not acting weird i just wanted to like i want i love you despite whatever happens and like so it's yeah it's it was a kind of a gut punch scene yes so so after he hangs up the phone he pulls out a pocket knife 
and basically like tries to commit suicide by slitting his wrists and he just can't go through with it. So he steps out of the phone booth and across the street at a porn theater he sees Jack again. And Jack kind of waves him over from a distance so, you know, he makes his way over, pays to get inside and goes and sits down inside this porn theater with the corpse of Jack again like just hanging out in the back. This whole scene like from a comedy standpoint is it's like, hilarious. Yeah. Ba- it's the fucking best so yeah we see jack again like even more decrepit and gross um like at this point it literally is just like an animatronic it's not even it's not even griffin done like in makeup anymore it's just straight up like a robot and he's just kind of hanging out you know making jokes about the bad porn that they're watching which the porn that's in the movie was shot for the movie so it's all it was all made like explicitly for this movie and that was actually the first thing that they filmed apparently it's an interesting choice right to have this set in a porn theater yeah. what a random location but I, like you're saying it really there's just that weird juxtaposition and that extra edge of comedy that it adds yeah. to the scene because it is just so random i think it's really funny but i'm curious to see you know what y'all think about it like well, is it that, right? yeah. that part's funny but like it's hysterical the fake porn <laughs> itself is funny yeah. like i just love the like couple make it out and then like the big guy walks and just like hey what do you do with my wife and it's just like i'm not your wife he's like oh yeah sorry and just like leaves and meanwhile she's like topless the entire time yeah. and the guy is like totally naked <laughs> yeah so at this point jack is kind of going back to the same stuff it's like all right told you you were gonna become a werewolf you didn't believe me well guess what you're a werewolf now you know it now do the right thing and like end it and it said at this point guess what i'm not the only one and then we see like the other people that he murdered are all also in kind of that stage one of their like death decay person kind of thing right they're all like mutilated kind of in the way that he left them the night before you know and the guy like in the tube is like really pissed about it he's just like fuck you you fucking murdered me you piece of shit like yeah go off yourself you fucking idiot and then the couple that he murdered is still just as dopey and dumb they're just like (laughs) oh yes it's delightful yeah you killed us really good you know it's just like (laughs) fucking dumb i I took it as like they're they're happy just because they're they're still with each other even though they're not dead And then, like, the homeless guys are just kind of like, yeah, it kind of sucked, but we were homeless, so, like... Yeah. (laughs) But, like, and then the best comedy lines in this movie are when they all start suggesting ways for him to kill himself. Yeah. Because, like, in that scene when he was about to slit his wrist and he couldn't do it, I was thinking, like, dude, just throw yourself off a building. Like, just go up to the top building and jump. Then, yeah, we get to that part where all the ghosts are like, dude, it's easy to kill yourself. Just, like, throw yourself in front of the train, jump off a building, shoot yourself in the head. And I'll say this, too. Like, we see at the very beginning the locals that kill the first werewolf, like, they literally just, like, fucking shoot it. In this movie, they're not playing with any of the lore rules of, like, you have to use silver bullets. Yeah, they even make a joke about that because, like, he, he says, but I need silver bullets <laughs> like yeah. one of them like is like what are you fucking an idiot like, yeah. <laughs> just shoot yourself so you know yeah if it is just that easy then yeah he could just like step in front of a truck or something but then you wouldn't get the like sad tragic ending. yeah true yeah so you know we see the other like full moon hitting and dr hirsch and nurse price are like still actively looking for him they can't find him anywhere so he starts to transform again in the porn theater we see like the usher guy go up and you know see like oh what's going on then just like giant fucking wolf with blood all over its mouth and he gets attacked the 
lady taking the tickets like runs out and is just freaking the fuck out and screaming like there's a giant animal in there and she's drawing all this attention all these people and all these police like show up and the police go in and see the same thing and they're just like fuck and like run out <laughs> they run out but barricade the door they're all yeah. like pushing against mm-hmm. it they yeah. throw the like shutters down over the entrance and they, they keep trying to tell the, i laughed at this because they kept like yelling at the crowd get away it's dangerous but more people kept just keep like going. crowding around yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, he finally, like, bursts through the giant doors and immediately, like, rips the fucking head off that one main detective guy that we saw from earlier and just, like, throws that shit over the side of the car. <laughs> that, was, that, that death was so hilarious to me because it was, like, just done in such, like, an 80s horror way. Mm-hmm. And it was just so over the top. I loved it. And I'm also happy that, like, the goofy inspector didn't die. Yeah, because the whole time, too, like, the goofy inspector is being played as a fool because he's, like, knocking over bedpans, but he's also the only motherfucker who's like, you know, all this werewolf stuff kind of makes sense, and all these pieces fit together, and the lead detective's like, you're a fucking idiot, no, (laughs) it's not what's going on. But yeah, he's, like, the motherfucker that's actually right about everything. And he survives. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, we see, like, this massive kill spree and the werewolf is just like running around and people are slamming cars into each other and it's brutal like people are flying through their windshields and getting crushed between cars most of the kills are just from motor vehicle accidents like it's not even from him as a werewolf and like yeah you're right them getting run over like you see heads getting crushed way over the top like this isn't how it would happen in a car crash but again it's a movie and like so again, this is John Landis. Like, think about the end of Animal House. Yeah. And just how that whole thing ends with, like, the death machine, like, rolling around and just all the chaos of that parade. And then think about the end of Blues Brothers with, like, the car pile up and everything and the cars, like, running through the mall. So this scene specifically that was shot in Piccadilly Circus, this was the first movie in 15 years that shot in Piccadilly Circus just because it had become so congested and clogged with cars, right? Like, when they were in pre-production for this, and they were doing the actual premiere of Blues Brothers, which Landis made before this, he actually invited, like, 300 members of the Metropolitan London Police to a screening of the Blues Brothers, and afterward was then like, yo, I want to use Piccadilly Circus for this giant car pileup scene, and they were just like, yeah, cool, that's fine. So they actually, like, gave him permission to shoot because they saw Blues Brothers. Uh, They did it for two nights. And they did it between like 1 and 4 a.m. And traffic was only stopped three times. That's awesome. And only for two-minute increments. So ultimately, they literally halted all of the traffic for a total of six minutes to capture this giant, like, ridiculous stunt. So all of this chaos is going on. We see all these people slamming cars at each other and the, the wolf is just running around. So at this point, you know, it's come across the radio and the police are, you know, heading off. So Nurse Price and Dr. Hirsch, like, rush to the scene to catch up with them. And, you know, eventually the police, like, corner David in an alleyway. And they have him basically blocked off. So he's all the way at the end of the alley and the police are there with, like, a giant barricade of guns. And... Nurse Price runs up to the scene and pushes her way through the blockade. This goes back to the whole, the werewolf has to be killed by the one that they love. She rushes up to him and sees him and calls out to him. And we see just a brief flicker of recognition from the werewolf. 
And then all of a sudden we just hear bang, 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 and all the police just unload on him. You know, if that the werewolf has to be killed by the one he loves, I've just realized that the untold queer love story of American Werewolf is, of course, the British hunter who shoots the old British werewolf. What was yeah. going on there? I want their story. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> hey, yeah, you're actually totally, you have a point there. Yeah. I do. What's what's going on in these yeah. little villages? Exactly. I want that romance. The very last scene or the very last shot of the movie is him changed back in human form with bullet holes in him dead and Alex is just standing over him crying. It's so sad. It cuts and goes into a doo-wop version yeah. of Blue Moon. Bah, 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 bah. Yeah. <laughs> It's just such emotional whiplash is the only yep. word I can think to describe that. I have never seen this movie, at least from start to finish, until I watched it. And thank you both for suggesting it because it's fantastic. I'm glad you liked it. Initially, I didn't know how I felt about it. Initially, I was just like, I don't know if I liked this movie. I understand why it's considered a cult classic and one of the best horror movies and best werewolf movies. But I don't know if it works for me. But then like, I thought about it more and more and it stuck in my head. And like, yeah, no, I fucking love this movie. I, I even wrote down a note and I actually wrote this one down in my phone because I, I was like out and about thinking about this movie. Me watching it now for the first time felt like me as a kid watching the original Ghostbusters for the first time, like when I was in second grade or third grade of just like, it's kind of spooky. Um, this movie does lean more on the spooky than Ghostbusters does it's hilarious in a lot of ways and it's one of those movies that all that old nostalgic feeling and love i had for ghostbusters kind of welled up in me while i was watching this movie and then after i watched this movie so yeah this is right up there now with like as far as a comedy movie goes this is like one of my favorite comedy movies yeah so speaking of i think this is like my favorite abrupt ending to any movie of just like a complete like Wham! That's the end, like, fuck you, Yeah. whiplash, right? My second favorite is a movie called Sightseers, and I'm not going to explain, like, what the ending is or what the context is, but we watched that movie together just because I had heard, like, some good things about it and it happened to be on Netflix. When we got to the end of that movie, I was, like, fucking cackling, laughing my ass off through the entirety of the credits because it was just so abrupt and did the same thing where it just, like, cuts to, like, really ridiculous music over the credits and I was laughing my ass off yeah. but this movie is definitely like the best example of that if you like horror comedies that might be one y'all should do on the show but yeah it, it's a good oh movie. yeah yeah. yeah, I've never seen it, so I would be down. Uh, more more British countryside, right? Is it British? Yes. Yeah, so it's a couple that travels around in an RV. They want to explore the countryside, and that is like the premise. They're going on a caravan journey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did write down in this movie, uh, finally, a movie where uh, American backpackers in Europe get totally fucked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I already said a lot in the podcast of why I like this movie, but... You know, just to reiterate, this is a movie to me that just works on every level. The horror works, the comedy works, I think the romance really works, and so it just comes together. You get such a range of emotions. It's not one note. I like that it gets right into the story and we're not waiting around for it to start. You know, these are things I really appreciate about the movie, and that's, you know, why I think it's just one of my favorites. Everything really works for me. And I do, I love a good, like, again, I was saying I really like 
like the tragic romances, just a doomed love story that you know is not going to work out. Again, that's the stuff that I just eat up. I really enjoy that. I wonder why this movie, because I agree with you on all accounts, I wonder why this movie stayed in cult status because of just how much of a success years later Ghostbusters was. Because this feels like a movie ahead of its time. Like this feels like um, if this movie came out before Ghostbusters, but maybe at a better time, it would have been a classic now instead of like a cult classic. I think it is an actual classic with like a capital C. I just don't think it's a classic to this current generation. Right. Like it, it was a capital C classic. And I think kind of with our generation and down, because that movie is just not widely... I don't I, like. I don't know if it's available anywhere. Like, how did you watch it? Streamed it. I mean, you can you can rent it online, but like, I guess what I'm asking is like, is it just like on Netflix? No, I couldn't find it on Netflix or Shutter. I, I think it was on Shutter, and for whatever reason, it's not on there right now. It was not on any of the streaming sites that like I pay monthly for. I think some of it is just. I think it's accessibility. I think it's because it's werewolves and there's just not a lot of werewolf movies and that's especially like not a huge thing right now despite like the Teen Wolf show. I heard 81 and around this year was like oddly just saturated with werewolf films because Wolfen also came out around this time. Yeah. And there was like a, I think one or two other werewolf movies that also came out around this time. Well, if I remember correctly too, Rick Baker kind of always had an agreement with Landis to do the effects. And then basically when they got ready for production, he was like, well, fuck like i took a gig working on the howling and landis was like god damn it we had this agreement and so rick baker's like all right cool like i'll come do your movie and i'll send my protege rob botine to do those effects and rob botine of course is the guy who goes on to do like the thing and robocop which hmm, the howling's not my favorite and i'll say uh rob botine's great but the transformation scene in that is nowhere near the transformation scene in this movie. Well, so we talked about Halloween Horror Nights earlier, and the year that Aaron and I went together, they did have an American Werewolf in London house. It was uh, so good. It was great, and I actually that's re- that's incredible. Yes, and so you kind of they have a couple of different scenes of the transformation. You kind of walk around and like see the transformation scene going. It's really cool. But that house was the first house in history of Halloween Horror Nights, and they've been doing this. 25 years at that point. That was the first house to be repeated from the previous year because it was so popular and the feedback was so good. Uh, So clearly, at least among horror fans, this movie does definitely have a classic status. And uh, I have a little sister who is, she's 18. She's uh, about 12 years younger than me. And she actually saw this movie before I did because my dad told her it was good and it was like on TV and they watched it together and she loved it. So I think even though it's an older movie, like it appeals to us, I think it still does appeal and will continue to appeal to people younger than us, you know, if they have the opportunity to be exposed to it. Like it does have that popular status and I think Rick Baker's effects will always for this movie kind of go down in history as some of the best horror movie effects ever made. Yeah, I do. I do just talk it up to accessibility and exposure you know if this movie was like front and center on netflix it would be seen by a bunch of people who are just like yeah sure and i also forget that like something like ghostbusters also was like all about some toys when that movie was released ghostbusters was a way bigger like 
pop culture yeah. thing when it came out a couple of years later because yeah it it was one of those weird 80s movies that was marketed towards kids that's widely like not really that appropriate of a movie for kids, <laughs> yeah, not for kids. Um, the ghostbusters like, doesn't have like porn in it doesn't yeah this, this movie know? is firmly adult no the ghost the ghost blowjob is like the closest yeah yeah really god that's what i'm saying like a movie that's like yo kids buy these toys slimer's your friend right oh yeah you get this bill murray action figure by the way dan Aykroyd gets a fucking ghost blowjob in that movie (laughs) (laughs) so i will say like and i'm very confident in saying this i put this movie an american werewolf in london like the way i categorize this in my head I put it right up there with the original Ghostbusters, like as one of my favorites, like totally. in the, that yeah. same category. I think it is of the same quality as Ghostbusters. Yeah. Maybe if it's even though it's not as accessible or as much of a pop culture phenomenon, but I think they are both great, and I'm so glad I finally got to see this movie. Totally, and like so many horror films, especially in the '80s, were always like adult in the sense that they were extreme like they were gory or they were over the top or whatever but like this movie is just adult because it's complex and it's nuanced and it deals with like adult themes and relationships in a way that like kids aren't gonna necessarily like get what the movie's really doing the self-awareness and meta context of it is very uh almost farcical yeah. Like in some scenes and it, yeah this this movie is fantastic i love it so i think that's gonna be it for this week um does anybody have anything that they want to bring up before we call it quits well thanks for having me and i hope y'all have me back when you talk about night of the comet that is another 80s movie that i love yes big big thanks absolutely thank you for being our very first guest Yay! on this podcast <laughs> big thanks to my lovely wife for sitting through this movie again with me and sitting with me in our little cramped office room and talking about this so had a good time <laughs> Me too. good couple bonding uh shout out to your younger bro jesse yep party gator on Bandcamp and, and and all that stuff for the introduction song and outro song yep you can find him at Bandcamp under party gator so definitely go there and hit him up once again we are watch if you dare check out our social media pages on facebook and twitter Download future episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, etc. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Insert a howling werewolf sound here. Sally!